Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 7.1, The History of Cuban-American and Haitian-American Relations. Welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana, and I'm a little bit drunk. And this episode was a special request that I got from a Twitter follower. I was on a summer break before starting my final series. But as these two countries and their relationship with the U.S. are very relevant right now, and I don't really like making Twitter threads, I thought it might be a good idea for me to throw my historical two cents into the pot. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? An invasion and occupation? Actually, yes, that could happen and has happened in both countries, as I will be explaining shortly. So I decided to divide this episode up by eras, eras that I arbitrarily defined, which kind of encapsulate the cultural and political and military goings on in the U.S., Cuba, and Haiti, and how these two countries interacted with the U.S., or rather how the U.S. interacted with them, because there's really no indication that Cuba or Haiti ever really wanted to be bothered with the United States. I just wanted you to get a sense of how and why things stand as they are now, at least from my sort of drunk perspective. Chapter one, the colonial and Napoleonic eras. So I know everyone likes to think that it's Hitler or even Churchill who most shaped our modern world. But personally, I think it's Napoleon Bonaparte. Nationalism, he birthed that. Trade blocks, again, he birthed that with the continental system. Even secret treaties and puppet monarchies, two things that are usually associated with Otto von Bismarck and the Germans and with Great Britain, respectively, actually came on the scene with Bonaparte. He also transformed the legal system of most of the continent to like what most Western democracies use now. But the point is... He birthed an era, and this era had very profound effects on the United States, Haiti, and Cuba. Now, we all know the myths surrounding the American Revolution, which, to be honest, is a period of history that I personally find incredibly boring. So boring that I don't even push back when people start fawning over the Founding Fathers and the Declaration of Independence. Most people know me as like a fount of useless knowledge about pretty much all points of history, but on the uh, American Revolution, yeah, I just don't care. Uh, And it takes a lot for me to be bored by anything in history, much less a war, but it is what it is. So I'm just going to forego boring myself and thus you with even a rudimentary rundown of the American Revolution and just let everybody coast on whatever bullshit they taught us in eighth grade civics. And I'm just going to move right along to Haiti and the colonial and Napoleonic era. So Christopher Columbus landed in what's now called Haiti on 6 December 1492 and claimed the island he called Hispaniola for the crown of Castile, who was funding his expeditions. He was an Italian, but the Italians didn't really fuck with him like that. Early settlement by the Spanish resulted in the massacre on the settlement of La Navidad in 1495 because the 39 men that Columbus left on Hispaniola decided to rape some Taino women and the caciques, which are like the chieftains of the Taino, Taino rather, they were not having that. 
And then a smallpox epi- epidemic <laughs> erupted on Hispaniola in 1507, which decimated the native Amerindian population of the island. Hmm, maybe if the Spaniards weren't such anti-vaxxers. The Spanish had found gold and silver in New Spain, which is now called Mexico, and Rio de la Plata, which is now Argentina and parts of Paraguay, and the Viceroyalty of Peru, which is duh, Peru. And so Hispaniola under Spanish rule was reduced to mostly like a trading outpost and piracy den. Now, for whatever reason, the Spanish who did pay any attention to Hispaniola mostly focused on the eastern half of the island, which left the western third pretty much open to whatever, and pirates loved it there. So a French buccaneer named Bertrand de Ogeron began, rather, cultivating hybrid tobacco strains that he had stolen from the English ships leaving Virginia, and he recruited French planter families from Martinique and Guadeloupe to settle on the western third of Hispaniola. When Diogeron and the other French settlers started balking at paying the Spanish any taxes, because, you know, they're French, the Spanish attempted to run them off the island, but the French settlers held on and the Spanish crown sent reinforcements. And so in the 1697 Treaty of Ryswick, the crowns of France and Spain agreed to split the island between the two of them and the French colony of Saint-Domingue was born. Fast forward 100 years or so, and on 14 August 1797, about 300 slaves of Saint-Domingue participated in a voodoo ceremony in the woods near Le Cap at a site now known as Bois-Caima. Sorry to all my zoes. That's the best that I could do. And under the direction of a slave named Duddy Bookman and a voodoo mambo named Cecile Fatiman, they planned the slave insurrection that would eventually become the Haitian Revolution. France, at the time of the ceremony and the initial insurrection, was in the beginning stages of its own internal revolution, the French Revolution, with the Tennis Court Oath having occurred on 20 June 1789. And by 1791, the autocratic Ancien Regime had been replaced by the National Assembly, who soon gave way to the Legislative Assembly, who soon gave way to the National Convention, and the power struggles between the Girondins and the Jacobins and the whole reign of terror stuff. So France was also intermittently at war with Austria and sometimes Great Britain and and sometimes the Prussians. I mean, they was beefing with everybody, including themselves, because there was also a significant rebellion in the Vendée region of France that lasted for roughly a decade. Long story short, they had a lot on their plates and they were not able to focus on their overseas territories. This was a bit of a boon to the Haitian revolutionaries who were able to expel the French who were by then under the leadership of Napoleon Bonaparte from the island by 1803 and led to the declaring of the first free black republic in the new world, Haiti, on New Year's Day, 1804. Enter the United States. The United States, as we all know, was founded primarily by slave owners, one of them being Thomas Jefferson who personally owned roughly 400 African slaves at his plantation of Monticello. And some of them were his own children. With, you know, great personal investment in slavery, the fourth president of the United States was pretty alarmed by the idea of a nation of former slaves, not too far away from Monticello, relatively speaking. And so he refused to recognize Haiti as an independent nation. Napoleon had pretty much lost interest in North America after the defeat in Haiti. And in 1803, he sold 828,000 square miles of New France, including La Louisiane, 
to the United States for 15 million, which is roughly 2.6 billion adjusted for inflation. Jefferson and the Southern politicians in his block wanted to create new slave states on those lands to further entrench their political power. And Jefferson had his eye on France's Caribbean possessions as well, including Haiti, who obviously were free, but he didn't see it that way. Beginning in 1804, the United States began a blockade and embargo on Haiti. Huh, where do, they never do anything different, do they? And also they didn't formally recognize Haiti until 1861 when all the Southerners were doing their own thing. And so the North was free to, I guess, recognize Haiti after that. And this blockade, which Haiti skirted with relative ease by routing their trade through Spanish-controlled Spanish Eastern Cuba and British-controlled Jamaica, lasted till 1810. While the U.S. continued to not recognize Haiti, trade between the two nations did resume after 1815 when the Federalist Party disappeared after the War of 1812 was resolved and the era of good feelings began. Now, Cuba. Cuba was inhabited by another type of Taino people, the Saboni Taino people from about the fourth millennium BC until Spanish colonization in the 15th and 16th centuries. During Spanish colonization, which began in 1492, when Columbus sailed from the Bahamas to Cuba, the island was administered as the Captaincy General of Cuba. And in 1511, the first Spanish settlement was founded by Diego Velasquez de Cuellar at Baracoa. In 1515, the settlement of San Cristobal de la Habana was founded and it is now the modern capital of Cuba, Havana. Like it was in Hispaniola, the brutal encomienda system and Eurasian diseases that the Spanish brought with them decimated the Taino population in Cuba. In 1529, a measles outbreak in Cuba killed two thirds of those few natives who had previously survived the smallpox outbreak of 1515. Throughout the 14th to, say, 16th centuries, Cuba developed rather slowly and lacked the entrenched plantation structure of its neighbors, British Jamaica and French Saint-Domingue. But Spanish development in the Americas tended to be slower in general because the Spanish only settled lands in the Western Hemisphere for resource extraction purposes, whereas the British settlers had a wide range of reasons, which included political oppression, religious oppression, and in some cases, the government just wanted to get rid of undesirables, which is how, you know, Georgia and, and, and Australia come into play. The French were kind of a mixture of the Spanish and French, uh, and British because, you know, they had the, the Huguenots that left and, and, and stuff like that. But in French North America, the French settlers mostly seemed interested in trade uh, like the fur trade and all that. And they intermarried a lot with the Native Americans, which created like the Matisse ethnic group and like the, the French Creoles in, in Louisiana. And French fur traders were more likely to adopt the Native way of life than to try and impose the French way of life. Mostly because the French are so stuck up, they don't think anybody could do them the way they do it like we would even fucking want to. In the Francophone Caribbean, the French made big bucks off the sugarcane plantations, but rather than adopt, I was going to say a more genteel approach to slavery, but it wasn't genteel because the British approach to slavery was not at, in, in any way, shape or form genteel. Like no type of chattel slavery is really genteel, but the British and the Caribbean and the, and, and the uh, Portuguese and the, the Americans and stuff 
they create created a system where they sustained a diaspora born population in their colonies. Whereas the French, particularly of Saint-Domingue, Grenada, Guadeloupe, Saint Lucia, Dominica, and Martinique, would just work the slaves to death and then they would just import more from Africa. And they were able to do that quite cheaply once you know, the English and the French weren't beefing or when they weren't beefing, because they were always kind of like on and off with the shit. But the English held the Asiento. So that gave the English a monopoly on slave trading. And that was how they made a whole bunch of money from it. One of the ways. And the French just, like I said, cheaply imported more Africans rather than try and sustain a diaspora born population. One of the results of that was that when you have large groups of people who have been kidnapped from the same place, they kind of already are familiar with one another, speak either the same language or the languages are close enough that they could communicate with each other. Well, they get organized. And that's basically what the ceremony at Boacamic could you know what I'm talking about. That's basically what that ceremony up at La Cap was about. It was about organizing themselves, which they were able to do because a lot of them spoke the same languages. They were able to organize themselves and pull off a slave insurrection that then turned into a revolution that then led to the Haitian Republic. So Cuba's slave population received a huge boost during this Haitian revolution as many French planters fled Haiti with their slaves and at first settled in Cuba, mostly along the eastern coast and in the city of Santiago de Cuba. That's why today Santiago de Cuba and the eastern half of the island have a significantly larger black population than the western half. That's where all the plantations were. It's the part that's closest to Haiti. And it's the part that has, you know, a uh, history of like immigrants from Haiti. These immigrants... Like I said, they took their slaves with them and swelled the French and African populations of Cuba and Louisiana as well. The Cuban planters, who had a rather diversified system of agriculture for the times, mostly because Spain was not heavily dependent on cash crops to sustain their colonies, especially not in Cuba, uh, the Spain, Spain, the Cuban rather planters reacted to this influx of slaves from Saint Domingue by prohibiting the sale of any slave that had been born on Saint Domingue limiting the slaves' ability to practice African traditional religions like Yoruba and Santeria, banning the speaking of both Creole and uh, African languages like Yoruba and and, uh, Igbo, and banning drum ceremonies, all of which were activities that helped foster the Haitian Revolution because, you know, slaves, they would, or, you know, kidnapped Africans, which is essentially what they still were at that point, were able to, like, communicate through the drums and stuff and, you know. So as Haiti was liberating itself, Cuban society, at least in the eastern half of the island, began to look more like Saint-Domingue pre-revolution with estimates suggesting that between 1790 and 1820, something like 325,000 Africans were imported to Cuba as slaves, which was four times the amount that had arrived between 1760 and 1790. The explosion of the slave population led to revolts like the Aponte Slave Rebellion in 1812 And by 1817, the population of Cuba was about 631,000, of which 292,000 were white of French or Spanish origin, 
115,000 were mixed race free people of color and 225,000 were enslaved Africans. Chapter two, the 19th century and the Monroe Doctrine. So by 1815, which is the year that Napoleon lost at Waterloo and the Napoleonic era essentially came to an end, the United States had resolved most of its internal issues surrounding the size and scope of the central government and had entered into a phase called the Era of Good Feelings. The fifth president, James Monroe, issued his famous Monroe Doctrine during his State of the Union address to the U.S. Congress, and it was an, a policy that opposed European colonialism in the Americas. It argued that any intervention in the politics of the Americas by foreign powers was a potentially hostile act against the United States. He did not try to make that make sense. The Monroe Doctrine was issued on 2 December 1823, at a time when nearly all Latin American colonies of Spain had either achieved or were virtually at the point of gaining independence from the Spanish empire. So the Monroe Doctrine stated that any further efforts by various European states to take control of any independent state in the Americas, and of course the U.S. was going to decide who was independent, would be viewed as the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition towards the United States. At the same time, the doctrine noted that the U.S. would recognize and not interfere with any existing European colonies, nor meddle in the internal affairs of European countries, which was a concession that Monroe and them were making to the British, who at that point were the only people who still had a significant amount of colonies in the Western Hemisphere, because they were still shook from the War of 1812, which they had only barely won, and that was mostly because the British were tied up with Napoleon. Now, notably, the Monroe Doctrine did not include Haiti, as it was U.S. policy until 1861 to regard Haiti as a colony in revolt and thus still the property of France. The Monroe Doctrine asserted that the New World and the Old World were to remain distinctly separate spheres of influence, with the separation intended to avoid situations that could make the new world a battleground for the old world powers so that the U.S. could exert its influence undisturbed. By the end of the 19th century, Monroe's declaration was seen as a defining moment in the foreign policy of the United States and one of its longest standing tenets. The intent and effect of the doctrine persisted for more than a century and would be invoked by many U.S. statesmen and several U.S. presidents, including Ulysses S. Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and Ronald the Devil Reagan. Through his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, Monroe's administration began to take a keen interest in Latin America, notably convincing General Simon Bolivar, then president of Grand Colombia, to uninvite the Haitian dele uh, delegation from the 1826, uh, <clears throat> rather, Congress of the American States, which was held in Panama City. This was particularly heinous because Bolivar had relied heavily on uh, Alexandra Petion, the first president of the Republic of Haiti, for arms and men and training and even a flag to defeat the Spanish and win independence for Grand Colombia in the first place. Not so fun fact, James Monroe, a Virginian who owned dozens of slaves who had once taken him hostage to negotiate their manumission and were executed for it, unfortunately, was a founding member of the American Colonization Society, which supported the establishment of colonies outside the United States so that they could get rid of all the free Black people that were living in the U.S. 
Slave owners like Monroe and future president Andrew Jackson of the Hermitage in, ten in yeah, Tennessee thought the presence of free Black people in the U.S. would encourage rebellion and resettle thousands of free Black Americans and West Indians in West Africa and the colony that became known as Liberia. The capital of Liberia, Monrovia, is named after James Monroe. In Haiti, the necessity of restarting the economy after 12 years of war forced General Jean-Jacques Dessalines to reestablish the plantation system, albeit for wages. The Haitians were obviously not keen to return to the plantations, however, and it did not go unnoticed that the mulattoes, who were largely free before the revolution and the most educated in the country, were not in the fields with them as they were needed to, to form the professional and administrative class in the new country which was essentially setting up a racially stratified society in a country where legally there was only one race, black. Many Haitians resented the new conditions, which were eerily similar to the old, just without the French masters. And Dessalines was sadly assassinated by political rivals on 17 October, 1806. After Dessalines assassination, Haiti became split in two with the kingdom of Haiti in the North directed by Henri Christophe, later declaring himself Henri I, and a republic in the South centered on Port-au-Prince, directed by Alexandra Petion, a mulatto and former compatriot of Dessalines. Roy Henry Christophe established a semi-feudal corvée system with a rigid educational and economic code, whereas Petion's republic was less absolutist and he initiated a series of land reforms which benefited the peasant class. Meanwhile, the French who had managed to maintain a pretty precarious control of Eastern Hispaniola, were defeated by insurgents led by Juan Sanchez Ramirez, with the area returning to Spanish rule in 1809, following the Battle of Palo Hincado. In 1825, several French warships blockaded the ports at Le Cap and Port-au-Prince and demanded that Haiti pay an indemnity for claims over property, including slaves, that was lost to them through the Haitian Revolution. And they wanted this in exchange for diplomatic recognition, which is a pretty shitty deal because I've already recognized myself. So like, fuck how you feel. Haiti had hoped that the United Kingdom would support their recognition due to the kingdom's strained history with France. Uh, but no, that is just not something that the British do. They, they, they like to brag that they don't bet on the dark horse or whatever, but really they're just evil. So they even provided British merchants like lower import duties, which they happily accepted. But during the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the British government agreed not to prevent France's actions by whatever means possible, including that of arms to recover Saint-Domingue and to subdue the inhabitants of that colony. I guess the Haitians forgot that uh, at that point, 1815, the British still had several slave colonies right there in the Caribbean, including Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, and a bunch of others. I'm not going to name them all. In 1823, the United Kingdom recognized the independence of Colombia, Mexico, and other nations in the Americas, while refraining from extending recognition to Haiti, further disillusioning Haitian-seeking recognition. Until France recognized Haiti's independence, the fear of reconquest and continued isolation 
would persist among Haitians. So they were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I guess they like really did need somebody to recognize them. The kingdom of Morocco did, but the kingdom of Morocco would recognize any damn body. I mean, they, not to say that, you know, Haiti shouldn't have been recognized. It's just like, they were just always so eager. Like new country. Yeah. What's up? Haiti was also financially strained after purchasing equipment to defend itself from invasion. So knowing that improvements couldn't happen until Haiti received that international recognition, then president of Haiti, Jean-Pierre Boyer, sent envoys to negotiate terms with France. At the meetings held between June and August of 1824, Haiti offered to pay the indemnity to France, though negotiations ended after France said it would only recognize Haiti on the west half of Hispaniola and that it sought to maintain control of Haiti's foreign relations. Under French King Charles X's ordinance, France demanded an indemnity payment of 150 million francs in exchange for recognizing Haiti's independence. And in addition to the payment, Charles ordered that Haiti provide a 50% discount on French import duties, which would, of course, make paying France even more difficult. The ordinance also stipulated that Haiti must utilize loans from French and American banks only to make those payments. On 11 July 1825, the Senate of Haiti signed the agreement of paying indemnity to France on those terrible, terrible terms. The payments were immediately difficult for Haiti, and the first 30 million francs required a 24 million franc loan from the French banks that carried an extremely high interest rate. Haiti would continue to acquire loans from France and the United States in order to fulfill payments, and the payments were frequently late, which caused tensions between Haiti and the U.S. and France. On 12 February 1838, France finally agreed to reduce the debt to 90 million francs to be paid over a period of 30 years as compensation to former plantation owners who had lost their property. Mind you, when they were going through their own internal rebellion, and especially when they were going through their godless phase and they were seizing all this church property and stuff, they didn't they didn't give no money to the church for, you know, all the monasteries and all the gold and all the shit they stole. And when they were like taking, I mean, literally their their uh, halls of justice, palace of justice, whatever the hell you want to call it, that belonged to the royal family. They didn't pay the royal family or any of those aristocrats for anything that they seized, but they thought Haiti should pay for winning their uh, republic. Once again, France is the fucking worst and the world would be better off if we just got rid of it. We know what the world would be like with a France. Why can't we just test out what the world might be like if there was no France? We could turn it into a parking lot. We could turn it into an animal habitat. There's just so many things that we could do that would be better than having a France. I'm just saying, think about it. By the late 1800s, about 80% of Haiti's GDP was being used to pay these foreign debts. France was the highest collector which was followed by Germany and the United States or the United States and Germany. It kind of bounced around between those two for second place. Haiti established the Banque Nationale de la République de Haiti under the supervision of French French Bank Society General in the 1890s, which essentially moved the Haitian treasury to Paris. The French government finally acknowledged the payment of 90 million francs. You know, Would France have any money in their fucking treasury if they weren't robbing black people? 
I'm thinking, no. They don't even have two nickels to rub together or francs or euros or whatever without niggas. The French government finally acknowledged the payment of 90 million francs in 1893 after 58 years, with France receiving its last indemnity payment in 1893. However, the U.S. government funded the acquisition of Haiti's treasury in 1911 via an invasion of Haiti by the U.S. Marines in order to receive interest payments related to the indemnity, and it took until 1947 which was about 122 years for Haiti to finally pay off all the associated interest to the National City Bank of New York, which is now called Citibank. If you're Haitian and you have a Citibank account, you should close that shit because you already paid them. Perhaps hoping for a similar result to France when they blockaded Haiti to force the indemnity in 1891 in what is now known as the Mole Saint-Nicolas Affair, President of the United States, Benjamin Harrison, ordered Rear Admiral Bancroft Garrardi to persuade the cessation or lease of Mole San Nicolas to the United States in order to establish a naval base for the United States Navy. Following a prolonged request for Garrardi's diplomatic credentials and increased public pressure, Haiti refused the request of the United States. In August 1889, the Haitian general Florville Hippolyte led a revolt against President Haiti, uh, President of Haiti, Francois Denis Legitime, according, and according to the New York Times, General Hippolyte had reportedly promised the United States that he would allow the construction of a base for the United States Navy in exchange for assistance with his revolt, though the report says that Mole San Nicolas was never specified as a location. Mm, so then why'd they show up there specifically? It probably was. President Legitime would eventually resign and Hippolyte would assume the presidency of Haiti. And by October 1889, U.S. President Benjamin Harrison was ready to collect. The U.S. tried many tactics to get Haiti to capitulate. First, the nebulous Clyde concession, which included a line of steamers under American, the American flag between New York and Boston and Haitian ports, and to pay the owners of this line a substantial yearly subsidy. The Clyde Steamship Company was reportedly the steamer line destined to benefit from that deal, which would force the Haitian government to pay them $50,000 U.S. annually for services in a contract lasting 99 years. The New York Times stated that this relationship between the Clyde Steamship Company and the United States government had long been a mystery, which is just par for the course for the New York Times because they lie a lot, suggesting that it was possible the company was acting on Secretary Blaine's behalf, since a steamer line would not benefit the United States, noting that the famous harbor, once in possession of an American firm, how easy would it be for it to pass into the hands of the Navy Department? Oh, so they might have been uh, honest that one time, but they went back to lying really, really soon. The Clyde Confession, uh, concession rather, failed and resulted with more direct demands by the U.S. to acquire the harbor. The Rear Admiral Garrardi addressed his demand for Mole San Nicolas to the Haitian government, and his letter contained the additional demand that so long as the United States may be the lessee of Mole San Nicolas, the government of Haiti will not lease or otherwise dispose of any port or harbor or territory in its dominions or grant any special privileges or rights of use therein to any other power, state, or government. Which is a, a fancified way of saying, as long as we're in control of Mole San Nicolas, you can't use any of your other resources and lease them to anyone else, which why the hell would I agree to that? 
The rear admiral then presented his orders from Secretary Blaine, though Antonor Furman, the Haitian Secretary of State for Exterior Relations, requested Girardi's diplomatic credentials since Frederick Douglass, who was at that time the U.S. minister at Port-au-Prince, was actually the person who needed to sign off on Girardi's orders. Girardi was forced to write to Washington, D.C. for his credentials on 20 February 1891. Having been confident of a swift victory, Girardi had not attempted to secure the cooperation of Frederick Douglass. Secretary Blaine, it was probably racist. He probably didn't think, oh, I don't need to talk to him. Secretary Blaine replied to Girardi saying that his documentation would arrive by the steamship Atlas on 4 March 1891. Though when the rear admiral arrived at Gonaives, his credentials had not yet arrived. In a show of force, the White Squadron, which included the USS Dolphin, USS Galena, and USS Kearsarge, joined the USS Philadelphia for a total of over 100 guns and 2,000 men and was dispatched from Key West to Port-au-Prince on 15 April 1891 with the apparent intention of intimidating the Haitians. I don't know if this happened before the whole suicide mission or after, but Haitians don't scare easily. So the Germans tried to do the same thing to the Haitians that the French had done in 1824 when they forced the indemnity. And I guess after the whole indemnity affair, the French were, I'm sorry, the Haitians were just not hearing it. Like they were just not dealing with anybody else's ships, blocking their harbors and thus blocking off their trade and threatening their sovereignty. So when the Germans tried it, like, let us take over your government and create a puppet government here in Haiti or else, this one Haitian admiral was like, you can be the king of ashes, bitch, and just basically blew up the entire fledgling Haitian Navy when it was right up on the German ships, which caused, of course, the German ships to blow up. And he died. And all the Haitians like stood there and was like, how bad do you want it? Because that's how bad I want to stop you. I will blow up every ship in my harbor to keep your white ass from taking over my country. And you really just have to like tip your hat to that, right? You can be the king of ashes. That's what he said. That was awesome. But they didn't do that this time. But... French, German, and British businessmen who were working in Haiti were uh, really pissed off at this overt show of military force because it was fucking up their trade. So that backfired too. Under these circumstances, President Hippolyte was compelled to stand firm against the Americans that he had relied on to bring him to power. Furman refused the deal on the grounds that the Constitution of Haiti forbade alienation of any portion of the nation's territory to foreigners. Harrison and Blaine were not discouraged by their failed attempt to acquire Mole Saint-Nicolas, though. Still insistent upon acquiring a naval station in the West Indies, they applied in 1892 to acquire a naval port in the Dominican Republic. John S. Durham, who had replaced Douglas as minister at Port-au-Prince and charged the affairs at Santo Domingo, was instructed to lease Samana Bay for a term of 99 years at a yearly cost of $250,000, But the deal was not consummated because the Spanish didn't fuck with you either. 
The United States would not secure a West Indian naval base until 1940 in Mock Bay, Trinidad, while Trinidad was still a British colony. The U.S. Navy left Trinidad in 1947, and the occupation, as it is commonly referred to in Trinidad, spurred the Trinidadian independence movement. So fuck you, fuck you, fuck you to the U.S. Navy. The New York Times defended Rear Admiral Bancroft Girardi from the fallout of the incident, saying that any criticism of the naval officer was malicious. The newspaper instead blamed Frederick Douglass for the incident and described him as pitiable for a man of his reputation and position and as one that no amount of explanation and no number of articles in the North American Review can smooth away. That's what you get for collaborating with them crackers. Upon returning to the United States in 1891, Garrardi said in an interview with the New York Times that in a short time, Haiti would experience further instability, suggesting that future governments in Haiti would abide by the demands of the United States. 25 years after the incident, the United States would invade and occupy Haiti for 19 years. Now, Cuba has the dubious distinction of being the second to last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery, with Brazil holding that crown, having only abolished slavery in 1899. Even with the growth of cash crop agriculture that came with the French emigres from Haiti, most Cuban slaves worked in urban settings as craftsmen instead of on those rural plantations, and there was a uniquely Cuban practice of cortación that had developed, which was akin to an indentured servitude. Spaniards never really flocked to Cuba, so there was a chronic shortage of white skilled laborers on the island, which led to Afro-Cubans dominating the urban industries to such an extent that it caused significant tensions when white settlers did eventually come to Cuba during the period commonly referred to as Blanquimiento. So the Blanquimiento period was a period in Latin America that happened in waves from, say, like the 1840s, 1850s until like the 1940s and 1950s when the governments in Latin America attempted to whiten their country's populations with European and Anglo-American settlers, promising them large tracts of land, low taxes, and less competition for social and economic advancement. Prior to Blanquimiento, Latin America was overwhelmingly African and indigenous. Afterwards, countries like Argentina went from being like 65 to 70% African and indigenous to, I think, less than 1% today. The first president of Argentina was actually a black man, son of a slave, nicknamed Dr. Chocolate. That's how black he was. In Cuba, the Afro-Cubans dominated the tobacco growing and cigar making industries, which were two of Cuba's most profitable industries. And so these new white settlers couldn't compete with them which led to violent clashes between the two groups and the importation of a racist class system to Cuban society. In the 1820s, when Bolivar was liberating the rest of Latin America, Cuba re remained loyal to Spain because its economy was essentially based on serving the Spanish empire. But by 1868, the Cubans wanted to renegotiate terms with the Spanish crown, which had been in a near constant state of turmoil throughout the 19th century. In 1868, the same year, Cuban planter Carlos Manuel de Cespedes freed all his slaves and then armed them to fight with him for Cuban independence. The Glorioso was happening in Spain, which resulted in Queen Isabella II being deposed and the beginning of the Sexenio Democrático. 
Prior to the Glorioso, Spain had dealt with an occupation by Napoleon from 1808 to 1814, where he installed his brother on the throne. The costly Peninsular War from 1807 to 1814, where they fought Napoleon to be freed from that occupation. The loss of nearly all their colonies in the New World in the 1810s and 1820s, with the exception of Puerto Rico and Cuba. And then the Carlist Wars in the ominous decade of the 1830s and 40s that saw government forces pitted against reactionaries who wanted a Bourbon restoration in Spain, which they finally got in King Alfonso XII, son of the deposed Isabella. Much like the French Revolution and wars with Austria helped the Haitians, the various internal problems plaguing Spain helped the Cubans. And in the resulting 10 years war, the two sides wore each other down until the Pact of Jan signed in the Camagüey province on 10 February 1878, where the Spanish promised Cuba that they would have the same status of Puerto Rico, which was notably some representation in the Spanish parliament. It also granted a general amnesty for all political offenses since 1868 and freed all political prisoners and Spanish deserters, although they were banished from Cuba once freed. Those released under the amnesty included Jose Marti, Juan Galberto Gomez, and Antonio Maceo, a small group of anti-Spanish insurgents in the Oriente province, led by Lieutenant General Antonio Maceo Grajales, continued to resist Spanish rule because they were unsatisfied with the pact, because it failed to recognize Cuban independence or to abolish slavery immediately. They argued their case without success in a meeting known as the Baragua de Protest on 15 March 1878, and eventually, Maceo fled Cuba for Jamaica after hostilities concluded on 28 May 1878. But Maceo and Marti in particular gained international fame for their anti-slavery stances and had many connections in Haiti, where they planned the next phase of the independence movement. Slavery in Cuba was abolished in 1875, but the process was only completed in 1886. Jose Marti founded the Cuban Revolutionary Party in New York in 1892 with the aim of full Cuban independence and abolition of uh, the corvée system that had been implemented in lieu of slavery. So it was pretty much the same thing. In January 1895, Marti traveled to Monte Cristi in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic to join the efforts of Maximo Gomez, and he recorded his political views in the Manifesto of Monte Cristi. Fighting resumed in Cuba on 24 February 1895, but Marti was unable to reach Cuba until 11 April 1895. Marti was killed in the Battle of Dos Rios on 19 May 1895, and his death immortalized him as Cuba's national hero. The U.S., fresh off their own civil war that involved the question of slavery, had declined to acknowledge Cuba as an independent nation during the Ten Years' War, probably because that's you know, the independence movement was also a uh, anti-slavery movement. And as the general public was more focused on the wars in the Plains, Rocky Mountains, and the West Coast with the Native Americans during the Homestead era, they didn't really care that much. Uh, now, when the Spaniards began a campaign of suppression against the Cuban guerrillas, the military herded the rural population into what they called reconcentrados, Described by international observers as fortified towns, and these reconcentrados are considered to be a prototype for the 20th century concentration camp. 
Between 20,000 and 400,000, I'm sorry, 200,000 and 400,000 Cuban civilians died from starvation and disease in the Spanish reconcentrados. And American and European groups led protests against Spanish conduct on the island, seemingly oblivious to how similar the Spanish reconcentrados were to the American Indian reservations and to European penal colonies. Mostly, though, Americans were making tons of money speculating on sugar and Cuba produced a lot of it. So in February 1898, the U.S. battleship USS Maine was sent to protect American business interests in Cuba. But soon after it arrived, it exploded in Havana Harbor and sank quickly, killing nearly three quarters of the crew. The sinking of an American vessel is a tried and true method for the American business class to convince the public to go to war for reasons that really only benefit the American business class. And we know this because one, Marine Corps officer Smedley Butler said so, and he was the hired goon for the industrialists for years until he got tired of their bullshit and became a socialist. And two, they do this all the time, from the Maine to the Lusitania to the Gulf of Tonkin, and recently, an American oil vessel was said to have been blown up by Iran, who didn't take responsibility for it because like, why the fuck would we do that? And also everybody knows that the U.S. is desperate to go to war with Iran. As a method though, it does usually work since the main started the Spanish-American War, the Lusitania started World War I, or at least brought the U.S. into World War I, and the Gulf of Tonkin started essentially American military involvement in Vietnam. So sinking a boat is a good way to get the American public to commit to a war that otherwise they would not have been interested in. Uh, yeah. And the battle cry, remember the Maine, started ringing out all across America. Also because the U.S. media exists to just report whatever the business class says as true. The cause and responsibility for the sinking of the ship remained unclear after a board of inquiry, but it was too little and too late because once again, Americans had a taste for blood and when they said they were going to war, they was going to war. Popular opinion in the U.S., fueled by an active and captive press, concluded that the Spanish were to blame and demanded action. And in April 1898, Spain and the United States declared war on each other. The Spanish-American War only lasted that one year because, as I said, the Spanish was down bad in the 19th century. Maybe not as bad as, like, the century of humiliation in China, but it was pretty damn bad. In the 1898 Treaty of Paris, I swear, every Treaty of Paris is worse than the one that comes before it. They just, I just stop, stop having treaties in Paris. They, they never work out. Anyway, America showed its true colors and rationale for the war when it became the proud new owners of Puerto Rico, Cuba, Guam, and the Philippines. All countries who would have rather swallowed hot lava than be transferred from the Spanish crown to the American government. What followed in all of these countries was rampant corruption and mismanagement and brain drain and ethnic cleansing and racism, you know, just standard American stuff. In the Philippines, The government of the first Philippine Republic, who had initially received the U.S. military warmly when they showed up to fight the Spanish, were absolutely livid at the terms of the treaty in Paris because American occupation was not what they were fighting for. And so that kicked off the Philippine-American War, which lasted from 4 February 1899 to 2 July 1902. Though the war officially ended in victory for the U.S., the veterans of the 
Katipunan, which was a Philippine Revolutionary Society, continued to battle the American forces for several more years. Among those leaders was General Macario Sake, a veteran Katipunan member who assumed the presidency of the unrecognized Tagalog Republic. Other groups, including the Moro, Bicol, Aita, and Pulahan peoples, continued to fight the Americans in remote areas and islands until their ultimate final defeat in the Battle of Bud Boxock on 15 June 1913. Fun fact! On 17 November 1899, the African-American U.S. Army Private David Fagan defected to the Filipino Army after clashing with his superiors in the U.S. Army and repeatedly requesting and being denied a transfer out of the country. The U.S. Army's tactics against the dark-skinned Aida people were particularly troubling for him, and he felt like they put him in that particular unit just so he would have to kill people that looked like him. And so after winning the trust of the Filipinos, he took sanctuary in the guerrilla control areas around Mount area in the Pampanga province or Pampanga, maybe. I don't, like I said, I've been drinking. Fagan served enthusiastically for the next two years in the Filipino cause and his bravery and audacity were much praised by his Filipino comrades. Fagan was promoted from first lieutenant to captain by his commanding officer, General Jose Alejandrino on 6 September, 1900. Fagan's exploits earned him front page coverage in the New York Times, which described him as a cunning and highly skilled guerrilla officer who harassed and, and evaded large conventional American units. Black newspapers such as the Chicago Defender compared how Fagan was respected and lauded by the Filipinos to how the U.S. Army had treated their first black officer, Henry O. Flipper, who was the first black person to graduate from West Point and the first to lead a combat unit, the Buffalo Soldiers of the 10th Cav Regiment in the Indian Wars. After using Flipper and the Buffalo Soldiers to commit atrocities against the Apache and Comanche, Flipper was blamed solely for those atrocities and court-martialed and dismissed from the U.S. Army with a dishonorable discharge, whereas Fagan was made into a cult hero in the Philippines. In 1901, the Americans had captured key Filipino leaders such as Alejandrino and by March 1901, Aguinaldo himself. But Fagan continued to elude capture, knowing that if he was captured, he would be court-martialed and executed. Branded a bandit by the U.S. military, Fagan became the object of a relentless manhunt with a $600 reward for his capture, dead or alive. Posters of him in Tagalog and Spanish appeared in every Nueva Ijica town, but he continued to elude capture. On 5 December 1901, Anastasio Bartolome, a Tagalog hunter, delivered to the American authorities the severed head of a Negro that he claimed to be Fagan. While traveling with his hunting party, Bartolome reported that he had spied upon Fagan and his wife, who was a native Aita woman, accompanied by a a group of Aitas bathing in a river. Recognizing him from the wanted posters, the hunters attacked the group and allegedly killed and beheaded Fagan, then buried his body near the river. But this story has never been confirmed and there is no record of Bartolome receiving an award. Officially, official army records of the incident refer to it as the supposed killing of David Fagan. And several months later, the Philippine Constabulary Report still made references to occasional sightings of Fagan. 
To this day, it remains unclear what exactly became of David Fagan, but his actions continue to be remembered in the Philippines as that of an African-American man who historically cast his lot with the Filipino revolutionaries to resist the injustice of American imperial designs. I tip my hat to you, Captain Fagan, and I really don't think that that guy killed him. I think he just found the darkest person he could find and cut their head off and was like, here, where's my $600? And even the army doesn't believe that he was actually captured and killed. So wherever you are, David Fig, I mean, you're dead now, but you know, wherever you ended up, I hope it went well for you, bro. Chapter three, American occupation and a capital accumulation. So yeah, sorry for getting off track. I just really love that story. Solidarity with all the people around the world who are resisting and fighting imperialism. But back to Cuba and Haiti and the U.S., right? Yeah. So Cuba gained formal independence from the U.S. on 20 May 1902 as the Republic of Cuba. But under Cuba's new constitution, the U.S. retained the right to intervene in Cuban affairs and to supervise its finances and foreign relations, which basically amounts to not being independent at all. Under the Platt Amendment, The U.S. leased Guantanamo Bay Naval Base from Cuba for an initial period of 99 years. In 1906, the first Cuban president, Tomas Estrada Palma, faced an armed revolt by independence war veterans who easily defeated the meager pro-government forces. The U.S. responded to this by occupying Cuba and naming Charles Edward Magoon as governor of the island for three years, a period that Cuban historians have characterized as having introduced political and social corruption. In 1908, self-government was restored when Jose Miguel Gomez was elected president, but the U.S. continued intervening in Cuban affairs. In 1912, the Partido Independiente de Color attempted to establish a separate Black Republic in Oriente Province, but it was suppressed by General Montegudo with considerable bloodshed and U.S. assistance. The PIC holds the distinction of being the first black political party in the Western Hemisphere. This is significant in view of the number of African-Americans who were politically active at that time in the United States and elsewhere. Historian and political theorist Alan Helg suggested that this is because black people in the United States, Canada, and elsewhere generally conformed to the status quo white party systems and supported the candidates from that party who were the least racist, aka lesser evil. In Cuba, the concept of a lesser evil did not exist to Afro-Cubans and they weren't inclined to believe it even if it had been told to them. By this logic, the PIC was a radical new idea that involved building a new independent party. This had not been tried before due to the risks involved, but the PIC was influential and instrumental not only in the Cuban War of Independence, but in their own revolt in the Oriente province to secure land from the American sugar barons and soon in the Cuban Revolution as well. In 1924, Gerardo Machado was elected president. During his administration, tourism increased markedly and American-owned hotels and restaurants were built to accommodate this influx of tourists. The tourist boom led to increases in gambling and prostitution in Cuba, as well as the introduction of the Italian-American mafia into the economic and political sphere of Cuba, bringing with them their decidedly violent way of doing business and taking control of key ports and industries in Cuba, including fishing and the hotels and casinos. The Wall Street crash crash, rather, of 1929 led to a collapse in the price of sugar, which led to political unrest, which led to repression by the government. 
Protesting students, known as the Generation of 1930, turned to violence in opposition to the increasingly unpopular Machado and a general strike, sugar worker uprising, and an army revolt forced Machado into exile in August 1933. An interesting tidbit here is that the Communist Party of Cuba during this time sided with Machado, mostly due in part to his support of the unions in Cuba, who competed with the mafios, mafiosos rather, for worker control over the rum, tobacco, and hotel worker industries. Machado was then replaced by Carlos Manuel de Cespedes y Quesada. He was named after the revolutionary, but he was not made of the same stuff. And he only lasted a month after the sergeant's revolt, led by Sergeant Fulgencio Batista, overthrew Cespedes y Quesada. A five-member executive committee, the Pentarchy of 1933, was then chosen to lead a provisional government with Ramon Grau San Martin appointed as provisional president. Grau abruptly resigned in 1934, leaving the way clear for Batista, who dominated Cuban politics for the next 25 years, at first through a series of puppet presidents, all approved through the United States government, who again had stated control over Cuban domestic and foreign policy through the 1902 Cuban Constitution. The period from 1933 to 1937 was a time of virtually unremitting social and political warfare. From 1933 to 1940, Cuba suffered from fragile political structures with three different presidents in two years, and in the militaristic and repressive policies of Batista as head of the army. In 1946, the Havana Conference, a consortium of mafia and Cosa Nostra bosses, was held at the Hotel Nacional in Havana, Havana, Cuba, organized by mobster Lucky Luciano, Charles Lucky Luciano. The meeting was held to to discuss important mob policy, rules, and business interests. The Havana Conference was attended by delegations representing crime families throughout the United States, wealthy men who controlled entire industries and unions both in the U.S. and in Cuba. Luciano later stated that he was approached by U.S. military personnel via his associates Sox Lanza and Meyer Lansky in 1942 and made a deal with the U.S. military to protect the eastern seaboard's docks and shipping facilities from possible Nazi attack or sabotage in exchange for a full pardon because he was in jail at the time, serving like a 30-year sentence for racketeering. After the war, this pardon was granted by New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey on the condition that Luciano never returned to the U.S., After spending about a year in Italy, Luciano received a summons to set up the Havana Conference at the Hotel Nacional, which was at the time owned by Meyer Lansky and Fulgencio Batista, who was by then president of Cuba again. The conference was held during the week of 22 December 1946 at the Hotel Nacional and is considered to have been the most important mob summit since the Atlantic City Conference of 1929. Decisions made in Havana resonated through crime families, during the ensuing decades, including Luciano resurrecting the boss of all bosses or godfather title Capo de Capi as a means of checking the ambitions of Vito Genovese, head of the Genovese crime family, and the Luciano crime family's formal acceptance of narcotics trafficking, which would run through Cuba as well as Cosa Nostra ports in New Orleans, Miami, New York, and New Jersey. The Cosa Nostra and Cuban President Fulgencio Batista had long-standing business ties that included that narcotics trafficking. In Haiti, a turbulent end to the 19th century led to a despotic beginning to the 20th. 
After the display of gunboat diplomacy by the French forced the government of Haiti to pay that indemnity to France for winning the Haitian Revolution, Haiti ended up spending up upwards of 80% of its GDP, repaying the French and American loans that they were forced by the terms of the treaty to take out in order to repay. The U.S. government and business class became obsessed with strengthening its military presence all over the Caribbean and in Haiti in particular. Beginning with President Andrew Johnson, the U.S. planned to colonize the entire island of Hispaniola, but had thus failed to establish themselves militarily in the Dominican Republic, who had sided with Spain in the Spanish-American War and who resented American control over Cuba in the 1902 Constitution, or in Haiti, where the Germans had had a presence since the revolution, being exempted by Dessalines and later Pétion from being kicked out of Haiti after independence was achieved. The German Empire, under the direction of Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, sought to compete with their French and British rivals in colonial expansion. And in addition to lands in German Cameroon and Togo, the Germans had rediscovered this long forgotten expat community of theirs in Haiti. And through them, they were getting cozy with the Haitians. The Roosevelt Corollary had also changed the nature of U.S.-Haitian relations. The Roosevelt Corollary was an addendum to the Monroe Doctrine, added by 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, who was also famed for his reckless and rather pointless charge with the Rough Riders in Cuba at the Battle of San Juan Hill. The Corollary stated that the U.S. would henceforth intervene in any conflicts between a Latin American or Caribbean country and a European country to reinforce the European country's position rather than having the European country do it directly. The purpose of this was to establish white supremacist control over the economies and governments of the Caribbean and Latin America, ensure that Europe knew that the U.S. was their ally against all non-white peoples, and prevent European militaries from establishing footholds too close to the U.S. The U.S. wanted to be the only dominant military force in the entire Western Hemisphere, and the corollary ensured that the U.S. aligned itself with white countries while also keeping those white countries at a safe distance. The Germans have been exerting more and more influence over the Haitian government, including during the looters affair in 1897, where a wanted man, Dorlius Presume, or Presume, doesn't matter, was hiding out in the business of a German-Haitian man, Emil Luders. And when caught, Presume resisted arrest and Luders then came to his defense. On 21 September 1897, both Presume and Luders were sentenced to one month's imprisonment for assault and battery. But on 17 October, the German charge d'affaires, Count Schwerin, demanded the immediate release of looters who had been born in Haiti but had a German father, as well as the removal of the judges and dismissal of the police officers involved in the case. Responding to intervention by the American representative, W.F. Powell, Haitian President Tiresias Simon Sam pardoned looters who left Haiti on 22 October. Afterward, on 6 December 1897, two German warships, the screw corvettes SMS Charlotte and SMS Stein, anchored in the harbor of Port-au-Prince without the usual salute, and Captain Thiel of the Charlotte informed the Haitian government of an ultimatum whose conditions were humiliating in both form and substance. They wanted compensation for the amount of $20,000 for looters, a promise that looters could return to Haiti, a letter of apology to the German government, a 21-gun salute to the German flag, a reception for the German charge to affairs, and gave Haiti four hours to agree to all these terms. The president was required to raise a white flag on the presidential palace as a token of that surrender. 
The Haitian government yielded, which distressed the people who had been prepared to defend their national honor. They were horrified to see this white flag, despite the protestations of the French ambassador, Theodore Meyer, that it was merely a parliamentary standard. There go the French, always scared of the Germans. Solon Menos, foreign minister of Haiti at the time, subsequently fought a duel with a member of Luder's family, which he won, and was the subject of an action for defamation by two German officials requiring him to amend a statement to the end of his book on Luder affairs. So look at Haiti. Tiny little Haiti was prepared to stand up to the might of the German Empire. And then look at France. Oh, maybe it's not that bad. That's why you never win shit. The looters' affair was extremely embarrassing for President Sam, as it should have been, and it undermined his authority in Haiti, leading to his resignation in 1902. The looters' affair was indicative of a trend in Haiti of European business and businessmen finding a loophole to do business and buy land in Haiti. They would either marry Haitian women and through them gain citizenship or, which is what happened in most cases, they would just start a common law family in Haiti, which was separate from their legally recognized family in Europe and through their Haitian relations born in Haiti acquire land and property and gain wealth in Haiti while not giving their Haitian children the opportunity to claim any inheritance in Europe since the European countries were only uh, going to acknowledge the children that were born in wedlock. Looters was a result of one of these mesalliances. That's why he was so desperate to return back to Haiti because in Germany, he was nobody and he was just a bastard and a half black bastard at that. In Haiti, he had status. So, and unlike the mulatto populations in the preceding generations, men like Alexandre Petion, mulattoes like looters clung very tightly to their European identity and felt that it meant that they should run Haiti versus their darker skinned and sometimes purely African countrymen. And these mulattoes were willing to side with whomever in order to establish themselves as the ruling class in Haiti. These were the kind of people that Dessalines warned the Haitians about in 1804. It was the reason for the massacre. And he was trying to prevent these split alliances within Haiti by only having one race and by having the massacre in general. He said, if you let them French women give birth, they'll give birth to our demise. And look what happens. Except it was a German that time. The German-Haitian community in Haiti was relatively small, smaller even than the Polish community that had switched sides and fought with the Haitians against the French and thus were also granted exemption by Dessalines. But these German Haitians wielded an immense amount of economic power in Haiti and controlled, some said, up to 80% of all international commerce. And they owned utilities, all the utilities and railroads in the northern part of Haiti in Cap Haitian and in Port-au-Prince. And they owned the main railroad that served the plain of the cul-de-sac. So they kind of had Haiti like on lock at that point. These German Haitians had begun strengthening their intelligence and military ties between Haiti and Germany. And in the lead up to World War One, President Woodrow Wilson feared that Germany would use Haiti as a backdoor to attack the U.S. and also worried that a combined Haitian German force would take over the critically important Panama Canal zone, which I have to admit would have been pretty awesome. So here, this point in time is where that suicide gunboat diplomacy thingamajig happened between Haiti and um, Germany. 
which is funny because as much as the Americans like to sell wolf tickets, like we're going to have any Europeans coming in our backyard thinking that they run shit. We run shit on this side of the, I don't know, prime meridian. I don't know what it is that separates the Eastern and Western hemispheres, except the Atlantic. You're just going to have to deal with that. But then like these German war boats just pull up in Haiti right in America's backyard and Woodrow Wilson just sat there with his little scary ass not doing shit and the Haitians had to drive the German military out of the Western Hemisphere because if the Haitians hadn't done it Germany would have just been running all over the damn place so I guess thank you Haiti for that but yeah if they had done that with Panama like Panama had had U.S. assistance in separating from Colombia in 1903. And so, I mean, no shade to the Panamanians. Y'all cool with me. The Colombians and probably the Venezuelans too would have been anxious to join Haiti and a a European military power like the German Empire and ousting the Americans from the Panama Canal Zone. So from a purely real politics standpoint, like no shade to the Panamanians, but just from a purely real politics standpoint, it would have been kind of, I don't know, pretty dope to see. Because, I mean, Americans, like I said, was acting like bitch made. Like, oh, you don't see the Germans like all up in your backyard? I thought y'all said no more old world in the new world's business. And like, look at them. They, they bring in all types of ships and taking over trade and da 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 There were some that even said that like the German government helped the Haitian government to pay back the loans that they owed to the U.S. so that the Germans could, you know, more freely control Haitian finances or or influence them at least, blah, blah, blah. And the U.S., for all their tough talk, didn't do nothing about it until Haiti ran Germany out. And maybe they shouldn't have. But then again, I guess maybe they should have. But yeah, the Germans and the Haitians were not, from what I've been able to research, even thinking about the Panama Canal Zone. And Germany's main interest in Haiti was commercial, not militaristic, unless Haiti attempted to reiterate their own sovereignty, in which case, yeah, it did get pretty militaristic. But like I said, Haiti handled that. Due to the U.S., French, German, and British meddling in Haitian affairs throughout the first decade of the 20th century, Haitian politics was a round robin of coups and paramilitaries that hid in the mountains that bordered Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Now, as I said earlier, the wealthier French-speaking mulatto Haitians wanted to wrest control from the poor but far more numerous Haitian Creole-speaking Afro-Haitians, the descendants of the people who actually did most of the fighting for Haitian independence. Various revolutionary armies carried out the coups who were formed by Cacos, which were peasant rather militias in the mountains of the north, and who were often funded and armed by foreign governments in order to keep the country in a state of revolt and chaos. In 1902, there was a civil war fought between the government of Pierre Thelma Boisron, 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 you know, I don't like French Canal, and General Pierre Nord Alexis against the rebels of Antonor Furman, which led to Pierre Nord Alexis becoming president. I don't know anything about Antonor Furman, but I like his name, so I'm gonna back him. Because he also was the one that kept the rear admiral Gerardi on the ropes. Like, I'm not trying to hear shit you talk about until you can present to me 
your proper credentials. So yeah, I'm on Furman's side. And I also like the name Antenor. In 1908, uh, Pierre Nord Alexis was forced from power and a series of short-lived presidencies came and went. His successor, Francois C. Antoine Simon in 1911, President Cincinnatus LeConte from 1911-1912. Boy, y'all be having some names on you, boy. Uh, and Cincinnatus was killed in a possibly deliberate explosion in the National Palace. Michel Oreste, or, or, yeah, sure, from 1913-1914, who was ousted in a coup, as was his successor, Oreste Zamor, in 1914. Between 1911 and 1915, Haiti had seven presidents because of political assassinations, coups, and forced exiles. American businessmen in Haiti who resented the encroachment of the Germans and who were largely involved in managing Haiti's debts to the U.S. wanted to reduce that German influence. So in an effort to do that between 1910 and 1911, the U.S. Department of State backed a consortium of American investors headed by the National City Bank of New York to acquire investor control of the Bank Nationale de la République de Haiti. This was the country's sole commercial bank and served as the Haitian government's treasury. In 1914, National City Bank and BNRH began to plan the destabilization of Haiti to pressure the U.S. to intervene. John H. Allen of BNRH stated that if the U.S. permanently occupied Haiti, he supported National City Bank acquiring all shares of BNRH, believing that it would pay 20% or better. Officials in the Wilson administration were not that knowledgeable on Haiti and thus often relied on information from American businessmen to influence and direct foreign policy regarding Haiti. U.S. Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan was reliant on an executive and lobbyist of National City Bank, Roger Farnham, for information regarding Haiti. Farnham persuaded Secretary Bryan to have the U.S. invade Haiti during a telephone call on 22 January 1914. Farnham argued that Haiti was not improving due to continuous internal conflict, that Haitians were not interested in the revolt occurring, and that American troops would be welcome in Haiti. So where have we heard that before? Oh, yeah. When oil executives told George W. Bush that if we invaded Iraq, the U.S. military would be welcomed as liberators. And let me tell you, as somebody who was in the U.S. military, no, the fuck we weren't. Farnham even convinced Secretary Bryan that France and Germany, two nations who were then at war with each other, were plotting in cooperation to obtain the harbor of Mole San Nicolas in northern Haiti. Will you motherfuckers let that go? The businessman concluded that Haiti would not improve until such time as some stronger outside power steps in. And William Jennings Bryan, you are the dumbass of the day. On 27 January 1914, Haitian President Michel Oreste, again, like I said, deposed in a coup. Two generals, Charles and Oreste Zamor, I guess they were brothers, I don't know, seized control. And in response, the USS Montana sent a Marine Corps detachment into Port-au-Prince on 29 January to protect American interests. On February 
5 February 1914, military forces from the French cruiser Condé and British HMS Lancaster also landed troops. But these units agreed to leave the city and boarded their ships on 9 February 1914 because America was like, no, this is ours to invade. BNRH's Allen telegrammed the State Department on 8 April 1914 requesting that the U.S. Navy sail to Port-au-Prince to deter possible rebellions. And by the summer of 1914, the BNRH began to threaten the Haitian government that it would no longer provide them payments from their own treasury. Simultaneously, Secretary Bryan telegrammed the U.S. uh, consul in Cap Haitien writing that the State Department agreed with invading Haiti, telling the consul that the United States earnestly desires successfully carrying out a Farnham's plan. American bankers, meanwhile, caused panic in the stock market by raising fears that Haiti would default on debt payments, despite consistent compliance by Haiti with loan conditions, and began calling for the seizure of Haiti's National Bank. National City Bank officials, acting on behalf of Farnham, demanded the State Department provide military support to acquire Haiti's national reserves, with the bank arguing that Haiti had become too unstable to safeguard their own assets. Bear in mind, for over a decade, these same concerned businessmen and government officials in the U.S. had been funding and arming death squads in Haiti, whose job it was to make the country unstable for this express purpose. Urged on by the National City Bank and the BNRH, the, with the latter of the two already under the direction of American business interests, the United States Marines took custody of Haiti's gold reserve of about 50,000 U.S., which is about 13 million adjusted for inflation. And on 17 December 1914, the Marines transported the gold onto the USS Machias and transferred it to the National City Bank's New York City Vault on 55 Wall Street. The confiscation of the gold provided the United States with a large amount of control over the Haitian government, though American businesses demanded further intervention. In February 1915, Vilbrun Guillaume Sam, the cousin of former Haitian President Tiracia Sam, was installed by a consortium of American and Haitian mulatto businessmen as president of Haiti, but his presidency didn't last due to his repressive measures, including when he ordered the execution of 167 political prisoners, including former President Zamor, who was being held in a Port-au-Prince jail on 27 July 1915. This infuriated the Haitian population who rose up against Sam's government as soon as the news of the executions reached them. Sam, who had taken refuge in the French embassy, was lynched by an enraged mob in Port-au-Prince that same day. The U.S. regarded the revolt against Sam, who was to act as a puppet leader, as a threat to American business interests in the country, especially the Haitian American Sugar Company. When the CACO-supported anti-American Rosavo Bobo was elected as the next president of Haiti, promising to oust all Americans and Europeans from Haiti, the U.S. government decided to act quickly to preserve its economic dominance. On 28 July 1915, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson ordered 330 U.S. Marines to occupy Port-au-Prince. The Secretary of the Navy, who was, uh, what's that guy's name, Franklin Roosevelt, instructed the invasion commander, Rear Admiral William Banks Caperton to protect American and foreign European interests. Wilson also wanted to rewrite the Haitian constitution, which banned foreign ownership of land and replace it with one that guaranteed American financial control. To avoid public criticism, 
Wilson claimed the occupation was a mission to reestablish peace and order and has nothing to do with any diplomatic negotiations of the past or future, as disclosed by Rear Admiral Caperton. Only one Haitian soldier, Pierre Sully, tried to resist the invasion and he was shot dead by the Marines on the spot. Interesting actions coming from the man who went to Paris in 1919, determined to promote self-determination for a mass of microstates throughout Europe, proposing that the first Polish Republic serve as a buffer state for German military interests. And how did that work out, Woodrow? During the American occupation, Haitian presidents were not elected by universal suffrage, which is weird considering, um, considering that America is all about democracy, but rather, these Haitian presidents were chosen by the Senate. So yeah, it's funny to me how the U.S. goes to countries that already have a system of democracy in place, albeit one that may not look like the oligarchical American version. And somehow, despite all that democracy that America claims to bring to everybody, there's always fewer elections with less fair results. Hmm. The American occupying authorities therefore looked to find a presidential candidate ready to cooperate with them and found one in Haitian Senate President Philippe Soudre d'Artinigua. Find the nearest Haitian and ask them to tell you how to say his name, who was among the mulatto Haitian elite that supported the United States. He agreed to accept the presidency of Haiti in August 1915. Braver than me, baby after several other candidates, much smarter people, had refused. The United States would later go on to establish more wealthy mulatto Haitians in positions of power. Part of the rationale for the invasion and occupation of Haiti was if the anti-American government of Rosalvo Bobo had prevailed, he would cancel all Haitian debts to the U.S. and American businesses would then refuse to continue investing there, which would have only hurt the uh, mulatto elites anyway, because the rest of the population was not dependent on American financiers. Within six weeks of the occupation, US, the U.S. government representatives seized control of Haiti's custom houses and administrative institutions, including the banks and the national treasury. Under U.S. government control, 40% of Haiti's national income was designated to repay debts to the American and French banks, even though they had already repaid the French. In September 1915, the U.S. Senate ratified the Haitian-American Convention, which granted the U.S. security and economic oversight of Haiti for a 10-year period. The treaty gave the president of the U.S. the power to appoint a customs receiver general, all economic advisors, all public works engineers, and to assign American military officers to oversee a Haitian gendarmerie. Haiti's economic functions were overseen by the U.S. Department of State, while the U.S. Navy was tasked with infrastructure and healthcare works. Officials from the U.S. then wielded veto power over all governmental decisions in Haiti, and the Marine Corps commanders served as administrators in the departments of Haiti. Their original effect, um, sorry, original treaty was to be in effect for 10 years, though an additional agreement in 1917 expanded the U.S. power for 20 years. For the next 19 years, the U.S. State Department advisors ruled Haiti and their authority was reinforced by the U.S. Marine Corps. The Gendarmerie of Haiti, which was now known as the Guard to Haiti, was also created and controlled by the U.S. Marines throughout this occupation. Rear Admiral Caperton ordered his 2,500 Marines to occupy all of Haiti's districts and the Marines set about building airfields. Despite the fact that most of the Marines were one, 
unable to speak French or Creole, and two, generally dumb as shit. They were tasked with multiple duties for their districts, including law enforcement, tax collection, medicine distribution, and overseeing arbitration. These are things that the Marine Corps has trouble doing for themselves, much less a whole country full of people that they don't speak the same language as. Now, as you might expect from a local government that was run by idiots from abroad who can't even speak the language and couldn't administrate their way out of a paper bag, everything quickly went to shit in the departments and the cacos became more powerful than ever because the only other alternative were the murderous and stupid U.S. Marines. Economically and politically, the Haitian government was now forced to rely on American approval for most projects. The 1915 treaty with the U.S. would prove very expensive, and the government of Haiti had such limited income that it was difficult to hire public workers and officials who would have to be approved by the U.S. anyway. So the mulattoes didn't even get all that power that they thought they was going to get. Before utilizing any money, the Haitian government had to obtain approval from an American financial advisor, and by 1918, they had to rely on American officials for approval of any laws due to fears of violating the treaty. Haitian opposition to the U.S. occupation began immediately after the Marines entered Haiti and installed the second president, Sam, without the consent of the Haitians in 1915. The rebels, who again were called cacos after a local bird that was known for its ambush tactics, they strongly resisted American control of Haiti. The U.S. and Haitian governments began a vigorous campaign to destroy these rebel armies. Perhaps the best known account of these skirmishings came from Marine Major, well, he, Major General rather, Smedley Butler, who was awarded a Medal of Honor for his exploits. He was appointed to serve as the commanding officer of the Haitian Gendarmerie during the U.S. occupation. He later expressed his disapproval of the U.S. intervention in his 1935 book, War is a Racket, where he also made claims that U.S. businessmen, including John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Mellon, and J.P. Morgan, had approached him about creating a fascist veterans organization with Butler as its leader that these businessmen would then use in a coup d'etat to overthrow FDR, which is now called the Business Plot. On 17 November 1915, the Marines captured Fort Riviera, which was a stronghold of the Cacos, and that marked the end of the first Caco War. The Haitians were still resolute against the occupation, and the legislature of Haiti immediately rejected the constitution proposed by the U.S. that would have allowed foreign ownership of land. Instead, the legislative body began drafting a new constitution of its own that was in contrast to the interests of the United States and under orders from the United States, President Darty, yeah, wow, I when Dartinik Winov, mm, yeah, it doesn't matter, dissolved the legislature in 1917 after its members refused to approve the U.S. proposed constitution. Haiti's new constitution was drafted under the supervision of Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was the assistant secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson, and a referendum that curiously excluded most of the country, subsequently approved the new constitution in 1918 by a vote of 98,000 to 768. What's the point of like going through all of these processes when your very existence in this country is despotic. Like, I wouldn't have showed up either for a no damn referendum. What am I having a referendum for? 
This is, this is not a democracy. In Roosevelt's new constitution, Haiti explicitly allowed foreigners to purchase land. As a result of opposing the U.S. efforts of re- rewriting its constitution, Haiti would remain without a legis- le- 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 legislative branch until 1921. I am getting drunker. Haitian resistance lost its main ally in the German Empire as a result of Germany's defeat in World War I, but they continued to fight anyway, which led to the Second Cocoa War in 1918. The U.S. continued its occupation of, of Haiti after the war, despite President Woodrow Wilson's claims at the 1919 Peace Paris Conference that he supported self-determination amongst other people. According to Africanologists, Patrick Bellegarde Smith, I checked, he's not even black. At one time, at least 20% of Haitians had been involved in the rebellion against occupation. Some fighting ass people. The second Kako War saw up to 40,000 former Kakos and other members of the opposition, led by Charlemagne Perrault, a former officer of the dissolved Haitian army, fighting guerrilla style against the gendarmerie and the U.S. Marines. The scale of the uprising overwhelmed the gendarmerie, but the U.S. Marine enforcements helped put down the revolt because they had air power. For their part, the Haitians resorted to non-conventional tactics, being severely outmatched by the occupiers. They didn't have air superiority. Prior to his death, Perrault launched an attack on Port-au-Prince that had Americans, Europeans, and other foreigners fleeing the capital. When I say spirit of Dessalines, that's the type of shit I'm talking about. The assassination of Peralt in 1919 solidified U.S. Marine power over the Cacos, and the Second Caco War ended with the death of Benoit Batraville in 1920, who had commanded an assault on the Haitian capital that year. An estimated 2,004 Cacos were killed in the fighting, as well as 28 American Marines and 70 ha- uh, Haitian gendarmes. The educated elite in Haiti by that point, we're also pretty fed up. And they also had paramilitary groups. Well, maybe if you hadn't invited Americans in the first fucking place. And chief among their groups was the Union Patriotique. Oh, now you're patriots. Which established ties with the other black opponents of the occupation in the U.S. They found allies in the NAACP and among African-American leaders. The NAACP sent civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson to investigate conditions in Haiti. He published his account in 1920, decrying the economic corruption, forced labor, press censorship, racial segregation, and wanton violence introduced to Haiti by the U.S. occupation, encouraged uh, by the U.S. occupation. This uh, write-up encouraged numerous African Americans to flood the State Department and the offices of the Republican Party officials, because this is this is this is Lincoln's Republican Party. We were Republicans then. Well, uh, they were flooding the offices with letters calling for an end to the abuses and to remove the troops. The academic and activist W.E.B. Du Bois, who had Haitian ancestry on his father's side, demanded a response for the Wilson administration's actions and wrote that U.S. troops have no designs on the political independence of the island and no desire to exploit it ruthlessly for the sake of selfish business interests. But yes, they did. Based on Johnson's investigation, NAACP Executive Secretary Herbert J. Seligman wrote in The uh, Nation on 10 July 1920, military camps have been built throughout the island. The property of natives has been taken for military use. Haitians carrying a gun were for a time shot on sight. 
machine guns have been turned on crowds of unarmed natives and the US Marines have by accounts, which several of them gave me in casual conversation, not trouble to investigate how many were killed or wounded. According to Johnson, there was only one reason why the US was occupying Haiti. To understand why the US has landed and for five years maintained military forces in that country, why some 3,000 Haitian men, women, and children have been shot down by American rifles and machine guns, it is necessary, among other things, to know that the National City Bank of New York is very much interested in Haiti. It is necessary to know that the National City Bank controls the National Bank of Haiti and it is the depository for all of the Haitian national funds that are being collected by American officials. And that Mr. R.L. Farnham, vice president of National City Bank, is the virtually the representative of the State Department and matters relating to the island republic. Two years after Johnson published his findings, a congressional investigation began in the U.S. in 1922. Not that congressional investigations ever really yield much of anything, ever. And this one was no different. The report from Congress did not include testimony from Haitians and ignored allegations involving the National City Bank of New York and the U.S. Marines. So then what was the point of even having it? Congress concluded the report by defending a continued occupation of Haiti. (sighs) Knew you were going to do that arguing that a chronic revolution, anarchy, barbarism, and ruin would befall Haiti if the U.S. withdrew. So what the hell you think is going on right now? Johnson described the congressional investigation as, on the whole, a whitewash. In 1922, the guy whose name I cannot say was replaced with a guy whose name I can, Louis Borno, with the U.S.-appointed general, John H. Russell Jr. serving as high commissioner. At this time, the BNRH was completely acquired by National City Bank and its headquarters was moved. Sorry about that. To New York City. General Russell worked on behalf of the U.S. State Department and was authorized as the representative to carry out treaty works. The Borno-Russell government oversaw the use of forced labor to expand the economy and to complete infrastructure projects. Cecil was introduced to Haiti as a commodity crop and sugar and cotton became significant exports. However, efforts to develop commercial agriculture were met with limited success in part because much of Haiti's labor force was employed as seasonal workers in the more established sugar industries of Cuba and the Dominican Republic. An estimated 30,000 to 40,000 Haitian laborers known in Cuba as braceros went annually to the Oriente province between 1913 and 1931, which is coincidentally around the same time the mostly Afro-Cuban Oriente province rose up again against the mafia and U.S.-controlled government of Cuba, who also had a constitution written by the U.S. for the U.S., The Great Depression disastrously disastrously affected the prices of Haiti's exports and destroyed the tenuous gains of the previous decade. Under the new, more restrictive press laws, Borno frequently imprisoned newspaper press that criticized his government. U.S. President Herbert Huber, you know who he is, had become increasingly pressured about the effects of occupying Haiti at the time and began inquiring about a withdrawal strategy. By 1929, Hades were ready to rise up yet again against the Borno-Russell government and American occupation and demanded direct elections. 
In early December 1929, protests against the American occupation began at the Service Technique de l'Agriculture et l'Insignant Professionals Main School. I don't respect the French language. And on 6 December 1929, about 1,500 Haitians peacefully protested local economic conditions in Le Quay and were fired upon by U.S. Marines, with the massacre resulting in 12 to 22 Haitians dead and 51 injured. The massacre inspired international outrage as Haitians in the U.S., Belgium, France, the U.K., and Germany protested in the streets, demanded that the international community condemn the U.S. for the occupation. After calls from other world leaders, President Hoover called on Congress to investigate investigate conditions in Haiti the following day and to draft that withdrawal plan. President Hoover appointed two commissions, including one headed by a former U.S. governor of the Philippines, William Cameron Forbes. The commission of our arrived in Haiti on 28 February 1930, with President Hoover demanding the commission to determine when and how we are to withdraw from Haiti and what we shall do in the meantime. The Forbes Commission praised the material improvements that the U.S. administration had achieved, improvements that most Haitians had built through forced labor but never benefited from, but it criticized the continued exclusion of Haitian nationals, read mulattoes, from positions of real authority in the government and in the gendarmerie. In more general terms, the commission asserted that the social forces that created instability still remain, poverty, ignorance, and the lack of a tradition or desire for orderly free government. Yeah, because you were the one who destabilized all of that. The commission concluded that the occupation of Haiti was a failure and that the U.S. did not understand the social problems of Haiti, which I'm sure he intended to be a drag on Haitians, but really it was a self-drag. Also, Forbes was considered a brute and a butcher in the Philippines and did even worse against the Filipino rebellion than the Marines did against the Haitians, So I'm not even sure why he got this job. With increased calls for direct elections, American officials feel violence if demands were not met. And an agreement was made that President Borno would resign and Haitian banker Louis Jean Roy would be the interim president. In the agreement proposed by the Forbes Commission, Roy would be elected by the Haitian legislature, who had been disbanded from 1918-1929, to serve as president until a direct election for Congress was held, which is when Roy would resign. American officials said that if the Haitian legislature were to refuse, Roy would be installed as president forcibly, which would probably trigger that violence that you were trying so hard to not have happen by installing Roy. Under orders not to interfere with the results of the elections, and they actually freaking did it, this is rare, the Forbes Commission observed elections on 14 October 1930 that resulted with Haitian nationalist candidates being elected, which is what what happened when you let Haitians participate in their own elections. Stenio Vincent was elected president of Haiti by the Congress of Haiti in November 1930, and the new nationalist government immediately had a tense relationship with American officials. By the end of 1930, Haitians were being trained by Americans for administrative roles of their own nation. When additional American commissions began to arrive in Haiti, popular unrest broke out and President Vincent reached a secret agreement to ease tensions with the United States in exchange to grant more power to American officials to enact their Haitianization policies. Haitianization policies in Haiti? Unnecessary. Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, if you will recall, 
said he was responsible for drafting the 1918 Constitution, proposed a new American foreign policy agenda with the Caribbean and Latin America that he termed the good neighbor policy. The policy's main principle was that of non-intervention and non-interference in the domestic affairs of Latin America. It also reinforced the idea that the United States will be a good neighbor and engage in reciprocal exchanges with Latin American countries. Overall, the Roosevelt administration expected that this new policy would create new economic opportunities in the form of reciprocal trade agreements and reassert the influence of the United States in Latin America. However, many Latin American governments were not convinced and with good reason. I mean, you guys haven't even fully left Haiti yet and you still are messing around in Cuba. During his inaugural address address on 4 March 1933, Roosevelt announced, In the field of world policy, I would dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor, the neighbor who resolutely respects himself and, because he does so, respects the rights of others, the neighbor who respects his obligations and respects the sanctity of his agreements in and with a world of neighbors. In order to create a friendly relationship between the United States and Central as well as South American countries, Roosevelt sought to stray from asserting military force in the region. This position was affirmed by Cordell Hull, Roosevelt's Secretary of State, at a conference of American states in Montevideo, Uruguay, in December 1933, where Hull said, no country has the right to interfere in the internal or external affairs of another. Roosevelt then confirmed the policy in December of the same year. The definitive policy of the United States from now on is one opposed to armed intervention, if only... As a result of the good neighbor policy, the U.S. terminated the UN, uh, the Marine occupation of Haiti in 1934 and annulled the Platt Amendment in Cuba that same year. The good neighbor policy led to increased immigration between the U.S. and Latin American countries and programming designed to dispel the stereotypes the two regions had with one another. The good neighbor policy was mostly a lie, though, because the U.S. also forced, with the mobilization of federal troops and Texas militias at the border, They forced Mexico to pay U.S. businesses compensation when the socialist president, Lazaro Cardenas, nationalized Mexico's oil industry and created Pemex in 1938. The Roosevelt administration and the New York-based Cosa Nostra Italian American mafia families also continued to provide Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista with arms and aid in Cuba during this period. Chapter 4, Post-War Revolutionary and Reactionary Governments After the annulment of the Platt Amendment in 1934, with the exception of the land lease on Guantanamo Bay, most of the U.S. formal involvement in Cuban politics was removed. However, the mafia influence and American business influence remained strong. Cubans adopted a new constitution in 1940 that had several radical progressive ideas, including the right to labor and health care. Batista had aligned himself with the young and mostly urban Communist Party of Cuba, who had actually drawn up the policy ideas as Cubans were asserting their rights after decades of Spanish and then American involvement in their affairs. Although Batista was a crooked businessman who helped the mafia move narcotics through Cuba and paid gangs to keep order in the cities, he used his mixed race heritage to win over the non-white demographics in Cuba and was elected president in 1940, holding the post until 1944. Batista, who engineered the Sergeant's Revolt in 1933, adhered to the 1940 Constitution's strictures preventing his re-election, and Ramon Grau San Martin was the winner of the next election. 
So, uh, Grouse and Martine and Batista frequently bounce titles and power back and forth between each other, sort of like Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medyev used to do. But Grouse and Martin further eroded the base of the already teetering legitimacy of the Cuban political system, in particular by undermining the Congress and Supreme Court. Carlos Prio Socaras, a protege of Grau, became president in 1948, and the two terms of the Autentico party brought an influx of foreign investment, which fueled an unevenly applied economic boom, raising living standards and creating a middle class in most urban areas. Now, a lot of the opponents of the current Cuban government will talk about how Cuba was a land of opportunity pre-revolution and there were businesses and parties and a chicken for every pot. The thing is, if life in Cuba pre-revolution was as good as they say it was, then why was the revolution ultimately successful? And why has the Miami-based opposition in the U.S. government been unsuccessful in overthrowing the communists ever since? The answer is that all those freedoms guaranteed in the 1940 Constitution and all the economic prosperity that FDI brought to Cuba in the 1940s and 50s was concentrated in the western half of the island and primarily in the cities. In the Oriente, Afro-Cubans and Haitian migrants had to fight for their civil rights and to stop foreigners, mostly American, from taking every scrap of arable land in the province and leaving them destitute and basically no better than serfs. Instead of fighting the Americans to create a Cuba that had a strong central government, able to protect the rights of the urban and the rural, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, men like Cespedes, Palma, Machado, Batista, Grouse, and Martin, and Socaras agreed to look the other way when Spaniards like Fidel Castro's own father or rich Americans like Meyer Lansky came to Cuba and bought land out from under Afro-Cuban peasants who had been on that land for generations. They also worked hand in hand with the mafia who kept entire neighborhoods and industries living in fear in Cuba, intimidating dock workers unions in Havana and intimidating Afro-Cuban and Haitian migrants who worked on the sugar plantations in the eastern half of the island. The revolution was successful because the revolution promised that all Cubans would have a better quality of life. And in spite of the embargo, Cubans now have a lower infant mortality rate, lower malnutrition rates, lower suicide rates, and lower homicide rates than Americans. And they have a longer life expectancy, lower cancer rates, better and more comprehensive mental health care, no homelessness, and a host of other things that even middle-class Americans can only dream of today. So the next time your abuela shows you her nice house in Camagüey and you wonder why anyone would want to throw, overthrow a government that made everybody rich, remember the Oriente, remember the Hotel Nacional, and remember that most people got poorer, not richer. Anyway, rant over. Despite all that prosperity, which again was not evenly distributed, Batista, Grausen, Martin, and Socaras wore out their welcome amongst the elites and the peasants alike, all becoming increasingly dictatorial in their positions. In 1944, Batista decamped for Miami, where he lived until returning to Cuba in 1952 to run for election again. When he realized that he would lose, and soundly, because first of all, he wasn't supposed to be running again, according to the 1940 Constitution, uh, he called on the resources of the U.S. government via his cronies in Miami and led another coup. This time, Batista did not pretend to care about workers' rights or systemic racism or anything else, and he suspended the 1940 Constitution and revoked most political liberties, including the right to strike. 
He then aligned himself with the wealthiest landowners who owned the largest sugar plantations and presided over a stagnating economy that widened the gap between rich and poor Cubans. Batista also turned on his old friends in the Communist Party, which, if I may get off subject yet again, is a fairly common refrain for Communist parties throughout history. In the spirit of collaboration that communists are known for, they will align themselves with liberals in order to stop the right-wing reactionaries or foreign invaders or dictators on the rise, and then the liberals will pay them back with betrayal. That's what happened to Mao and the communists after they allied themselves with the KMT to defeat the Japanese in the 1927 Shanghai massacre. It's what happened to the KPD and Germany after they helped the SPD put down the cat push in 1920. And it's what happened to the communists in Cuba after helping Batista draft the 1940 constitution and secure the presidency. Batista outlawed the Communist Party in 1952, and so many of them went into hiding in neighboring countries. Fidel Castro notably spent time among former Cacos in Haiti and with separatists in Veracruz and the Sonora in Mexico, where he learned a lot of guerrilla tactics. The moral of the story is, you are not here to make friends, and the liberals are definitely not your friends. Guard your six, hold your tongue, and remember that even the lesser evil is still evil. After the coup, Cuba had Latin America's highest per capita consumption rates of meat, vegetables, cereals, automobiles, telephones, and radios, though about one third of the population was considered poor and enjoyed relatively little of this consumption. Shanties and slums were frequently tucked behind glittering hotels and poorer residents were abused by police and told to stay out of tourist areas in the wealthier parts of the cities, while farm workers in the rural areas continued to be abused by the large plantation owners. For the United States, this was ideal. As former U.S. ambassador to Cuba, Arthur Gardner later described the relationship between the U.S. and Batista during his second term as president. Batista had always leaned towards the United States. I don't think we ever had a better friend. It was regrettable, like all South Americans, that he was known, although I had no absolutely no knowledge of it, to be getting a cut. I think is the word for it in almost all things that were done. But on the other hand, he was doing an amazing job. In July 1953, an armed conflict broke out in Cuba between rebels led by Fidel Castro and the Batista government. During the course of the conflict, the U.S. sold... $8.238 million worth of weapons to the Cuban government to help squash this rebellion. However, the Cuban president in waiting, Manuel Urrutia Leo, urged the U.S. to stop selling Batista weapons because Batista would just give them to the street gangs that he funded, and Leo wanted the U.S. to fund him instead since he had actually won the election. In March 1958, Washington made the critical move to end the sale of rifles to Batista's forces, thus changing the course of the Cuban Revolution irreversibly towards the rebels. The move was vehemently opposed by U.S. Ambassador Earl E.T. Smith and led U.S. State Department advisor William Whelan to lament that, I know Batista is considered by many as a son of a bitch, but American interests come first. At least he was our son of a bitch. So if any of the Gusanos want to be mad about losing the revolution, be mad at the U.S. They're the ones who picked Batista, the dictator, and the mafioso drug smuggler over Manuel Uriatia Leo. But also, thank you, U.S. State Department, for stop selling, because you stopped selling Batista weapons. That was a, that was a real smooth move. I don't know how you thought he was going to win without it when he had been dependent on U.S. support 
ever since the Sarge's revolt, but <laughs> Fidel and Raul and all the communists in Cuba and communists worldwide, really, we thank you. Mwah, mwah. Good job. In 1958, Cuba was a relatively well-advanced country and on paper had perhaps the largest uh, labor union privileges in Latin America, including bans on dismissals and mechanization. They were, however, obtained in large measure at the cost of the unemployed and the peasants. This is ac according to Earl E.T. Smith, leading to widening economic equality, similar to what countries like Chile, Argentina, and Venezuela had under Pinochet, Videla, and Perez Jimenez dictatorships, respectively. Between 1933 and 1958, Cuba extended economic regulations enormously, causing economic problems. Unemployment became a problem as graduates entering the workforce could not find jobs. The middle class, which was comparable to that of the United States, became increasingly dissatisfied with unemployment and political persecution. The labor unions, manipulated by previous governments since 1948 through union yellowness, supported Batista, though, until the very end. Batista stayed in power until he resigned in December 1958 under pressure of the U.S. Embassy and as the revolutionary forces headed by Fidel Castro were winning militarily. In his History Will Absolve Me speech, Fidel Castro mentioned that national issues relating to land, industrialization, housing, unemployment, education, and health care were contemporary problems plaguing Cuba that the Communist Party would alleviate. While the U.S. government was dismayed at the overthrow of Batista, who they'd worked closely with since the 1930s, what really set the feds off was when Fidel seized the American-owned sugar plantations and refineries, as well as all other foreign-owned businesses and properties. Prior to that, the U.S. government made several overtures towards Fidel Castro, urging him to clean out the rot in the Cuban government and even sending him a draft of a constitution they wanted his government to adopt to replace the 1940 constitution that Batista had adopted. The U.S. government felt that Batista and his cronies had gotten a little ahead of themselves and taxed American-owned businesses in Cuba unfairly, which means taxing them at all, really. So I bet seeing that constitution on his desk, written by some Yankee who probably spoke like 10 words in Spanish, was probably what set Fidel off for real and made him say, oh yeah, Cuban tax is too high. Well, now you won't have to worry about paying Cuban government any taxes because I'm taking all your shit. Now how you feeling? Anyway, Castro and the communists did draft another constitution, this one with no input from Americans, which was pretty rare for a Latin American or Caribbean country at that time. So the Americans did get what they wanted, just not how they wanted it. Until Castro, the U.S. was so overwhelmingly influential in Cuba that the American ambassador was the second most important man, sometimes even more important than the Cuban president. Those are the words of Earl E.T. Smith, former American ambassador to Cuba during his 1960 testimony to the U.S. Senate. No matter how much they try to distort the history, you can always count on the florid-faced white men of the past to say the quiet part out loud, and for that, I am thankful. Especially for Earl E.T. Smith, because he was a real straight shooter who never romanticized U.S. involvement in Cuba under bullshit notions of freedom and democracy and all that other crap. He and his fellow American lawmakers and bureaucrats felt like Cuba belonged to them and it was theirs to do whatever they wanted to do with it. And Earl E.T. Smith just said it. He just said it. 
U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower had officially recognized the new Cuban government after the 1959 Cuban Revolution. But like I said, when Castro began nationalizing American-owned plantations and industries, relations between the two governments deteriorated rapidly. Within days, Earl E.T. Smith was replaced by Philip Bonsall. The U.S. government became increasingly concerned by Cuba's agrarian reforms and the nationalization of industries owned by U.S. citizens. Between 15 and 26 April 1959, Fidel Castro and a delegation of representatives visited the U.S. as guests of the press club. Many perceived this trip as a charm offensive on the part of Castro, but in all actuality, because uh, this is what Castro wrote, he just wanted to meet uh, Muhammad Ali, who was still going by Cassius Clay at that time, but he was like a champion and he just wanted to meet him. And he wanted to meet Malcolm X and he wanted to hang out in Harlem. <laughs> and he did all of that and then some on the Yankees dime. So Castro kind of ran off on the plug twice. How could you ever hate this guy? Castro did humor the Yankees by placing a wreath at the Lincoln Memorial, though. Another fun fact, the press club wanted him to lay it at the Washington Monument or like somebody else's tomb or whatever. But he said he didn't have any interest in doing that and argued that if any president would get a wreath laid by him, it would be Lincoln because Lincoln, quote unquote, freed the slaves. That was like a thing that people really believed back then. But you know what, Fidel, your heart was in the right place. After a meeting between Castro and then Vice President Richard Nixon, where Castro outlined all of his reform plans for Cuba, Nixon was so shook that the U.S. began to impose gradual trade restrictions on the island. On 4 September 1959, Ambassador Bonsall met with Cuban Premier Fidel Castro to express serious concern at the treatment being given to American private interests in Cuba in both agriculture and utilities, a.k.a. stop taking our land and giving it to poor people. During the Escambray Rebellion, as state intervention and takeover of privately, foreign, uh, privately owned foreign and domestic businesses continued, trade restrictions on Cuba increased. The U.S. stopped buying Cuban sugar and, reflu- and refused to supply its former trading partner with much-needed oil, with a devastating effect on the island's economy. This led to Cuba turning to their newfound trading partner, the Soviet Union, for petroleum. What did you think was going to happen when you stopped sending them oil? The other huge oil producing nation that you have beef with is going to be like, oh, well, unlike them, I'll keep giving you oil. Like, what did you think the Cubans were going to do? Just lay down and die? No. So in March 1960, tensions increased when the French freighter La Coubre exploded in Havana Harbor, killing over 75 people. What did I tell you about Americans and blowing up ships? It's what they do. Fidel Castro blamed the U.S. and compared the incident to the sinking of the Maine, though he admitted he could provide no concrete evidence for his accusation. Well, that makes it even more like the Maine. That same month, President Eisenhower quietly authorized the CIA to organize, train, and equip Cuban refugees as a guerrilla force to overthrow Castro. So concrete evidence on the Lacubre aside, there is irrefutable proof that the CIA was put on the job to try and bring down the communist government in Cuba. Each time the Cuban government nationalized American citizens' properties, the American government took countermeasures resulting in the prohibition of all exports to Cuba on 19 October 1960. Consequently, Cuba began to consolidate trade relations with the USSR. 
ooh, excuse me, leading the U.S. to break off all remaining official diplomatic relations. Later that year, U.S. diplomats Edwin L. Sweet and William G. Friedman were arrested and expelled from the island, having been charged with encouraging terrorist acts, granting asylum, financing versus publications, and smuggling weapons, all of which they probably were doing. On 3 January 1961, the U.S. withdrew diplomatic recognition of the Cuban government and closed the embassy in Havana. Presidential candidate John F. Kennedy believed that Eisenhower's policy towards Cuba had been a mistake. He criticized what he saw as use of U.S. government influence to advance the interests and increase the profits of private U.S. companies instead of helping Cuba to achieve economic progress, saying that Americans dominated the island's economy and had given support to one of the bloodiest and most repressive dictatorships in the history of Latin America. Quote by JFK. We let Batista put the U.S. on the side of tyranny. And we did nothing to convince the people of Cuba and Latin America that we wanted to be on the side of freedom. See, history was absolving Fidel Castro in real time and people in the U.S. government were the ones doing it. In 1961, Cuba resisted an armed invasion uh, by about 1,500 CIA-trained Cuban exiles at the Bay of Pigs. President Kennedy's complete assumption of responsibility for the venture, which provoked a popular reaction against the invaders, proved to be a further propaganda boost for the Cuban government. It was started, actually, by Eisenhower, but Kennedy was the one that gave the the go-ahead. The U.S. began the formulation of new plans aimed at destabilizing the Cuban government, engaging in an extensive and ongoing series of terrorist attacks against Cuba. These activities were collectively known as Operation Mongoose. The attacks formed a CIA-coordinated program of terrorist bombings, political and military sabotage, and psychological operations, as well as repeated assassination attempts on key political leaders. The Joint Chiefs of Staff also proposed attacks on mainland U.S. targets, hijackings, and assault on Cuban refugee boats to generate U.S. public support for military action against the Cuban government, these proposals were collectively known as Operation Northwoods. So yeah, sure, blow up your own countrymen and people you call refugees to own the commies. That sounds, yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if it ever crossed anybody's mind that if they had to commit atrocities themselves and then blame the Cuban government, that maybe the Cuban government weren't really the bad guys. I can imagine some puffed up general sitting there reading reports of Fidel Castro going to the countryside, not to throw peasants off the land, but to help them cultivate their revolutionary gardens so Cubans could continue to feed themselves and their neighbors in spite of the embargo. And he's practically got steam coming out of his ears. Like he's just mad. Like, why won't this man kill innocent people? Maybe it's because you're the ones that do that and not him. A U.S. Senate Select Intelligence Committee report later confirmed over eight attempted plots to kill Castro between 1960 and 1965, as well as additional plans against other Cuban leaders. After weathering the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, Cuba observed as U.S. armed forces staged a mock invasion of a Caribbean island in 1962 called Operation Ortsak. The purpose of the invasion was to overthrow a, la- a leader whose name, Ortsak, was Castro, spelled backwards. 
Tensions between the two nations reached a peak in 1962 after U.S. reconnaissance aircraft photographed the Soviet construction of an intermediate range missile sites, which of course I would let the Soviets build an intermediate range missile site on my soil after you guys put on a whole mock invasion and have tried to kill me and try to invade at the Bay of Pigs, and you blew up a French freighter and a bunch of other stuff, yeah, I'm gonna want some protection. But um, this became the Cuban Missile Crisis, which it wasn't Kennedy who saved us all from nuclear war. It was some Russian guy on the ship who was like, you know what, it's not even that damn serious. You know these Americans will drop more atomic bombs and I'm not even trying to you know what we're gonna go home it's fine so thank you uh Russian guy for blinking and not causing another nuclear holocaust because the U.S. was so ready to drop more nuclear weapons like what the fuck trade relations also deteriorated in equal measure In 1962, President Kennedy broadened the partial trade restrictions imposed after the revolution by Eisenhower to a ban on all trade with Cuba, except for non-subsidized sale of food and medicine. A year later, travel and financial restrictions by U.S. citizens with Cuba, oh my gosh, was prohibited. The United States embargo against Cuba continues in varying forms and currently... Even syringes used to distribute life-saving vaccines during the COVID-19 pandemic are listed under the embargo. Technically, yes, but technically, no. So, and I'll get to, I'll, I'll explain this in greater detail in a minute, but technically, medicines are allowed to be exported to Cuba, not just by American businesses, but by foreign businesses who also want to continue doing business with the United States as well. But it has to be uh, approved beforehand by the Treasury Department. And the Treasury Department is at the moment refusing to, uh, refusing to, uh, what do you call that? Allow that importation of you know, certain medicine things like syringes, which you need to inject people with the vaccine so that they don't get or transmit or die of or what have you, COVID-19, which is like pretty serious. But what they didn't count on was that if you sanction every fucking body, then the sanctioned are just gonna start tag teaming together. So Iran is like, well, we don't have vaccines, but we do have syringes and we're already sanctioned to hell by the U.S. So how about we just link up with Russia, who also has hella sanctions on them? So, I mean, we're all sanctioned. Why don't we just link up and just, you know, swap vaccines and syringes and every fucking else thing that we need? Ventilators, yada, yada, yada. Like Russia is a, a far more industrialized country than Cuba and Iran. And they're under hella sanctions too. So it's like, well, shit, we already sanctioned. We might as well just do this. So recently the Russians, cause they're already sanctioned. Like we already can't do half the shit we want to do with, with anybody except other sanctioned people. And Venezuela is also sanctioned. And they're also like, wait, don't forget about me. Like shit, we need stuff too. 
So now Russia and Iran and Cuba and Venezuela and, and China, who has also has hella sanctions on them already, are like, well, shit, like, tag me in, folk. And all the sanctioned are just like, well, fuck you too then. And they're getting it done. And the Russians and the Chinese sent over syringes and a whole bunch of other shit so that the Cubans who have their own vaccine can now administer said vaccine. So, you know, sanctions, not as effective as you might think. Uh, Despite tensions between the U.S. and Cuba during the Kennedy years, relations began to thaw somewhat after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Back channels that had already been established at the height of tensions between the two nations began to expand in 1963. Though Attorney General Robert Kennedy worried that such contact would hurt his brother's chances of re-election, President John Kennedy continued these contacts, resulting in several me- uh, meetings. U.S. Ambassador William Atwood uh and Cuban officials such as Carlos Lechuga would meet sometimes in the U.S., sometimes in Jamaica, sometimes in Cuba to discuss like, hey, how can we make this work? The rationale was because Russia in, 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 in early 1963 was much stronger and an equitable power to the United States. And as the United States got more take your ball and go home about everything, the USSR was like, fine, that's just more trade that we will do with Cuba then since you want to be petulant little bitches about it. And by 1963, Kennedy was realizing, well, damn, this embargo is not really working the way that we thought it would. And so the back channels were being established. So... Other contacts will be established directly between President Kennedy and Fidel Castro through media figures such as Lisa Howard and French reporter Jean Daniel days before the Kennedy assassination with Castro stating, I'm willing to declare Goldwater, my friend, if that will guarantee Kennedy's reelection. So, you know, that along with Kennedy's stated plans to de-escalate the war in Vietnam start to make a lot of things more clear about why Kennedy was assassinated. Remember the business plot. And remember, kids, war is a racket. Castro, for his part, continued his efforts to improve relations with the incoming Johnson administration by sending a message to Johnson encouraging dialogue saying, I seriously hope that Cuba and the United States can eventually respect and negotiate our differences. I believe that there are no areas of contention between us that cannot be discussed and settled within a climate of mutual understanding. But first, of course, it is necessary to discuss our differences. I now believe that this hostility between Cuba and the United States is both unnatural and unnecessary, and it can be eliminated. But Johnson wasn't trying to hear that. Continued tensions over various issues would hamper further efforts to normalize relations that started at the end of the Kennedy administration, such as the Guantanamo dispute of 1964 or Cuba's embrace of the Black Panther leaders who took refuge in Cuba in the 1960s. Perhaps the biggest clash during the Johnson administration would be the capture of Che Guevara in 1967 by right-wing Bolivian forces assisted by the CIA and U.S. Special Forces. Since 1959, Cuba has regarded U.S. presence in Guantanamo Bay as illegal. 
The U.S. continues to operate a naval base at Guantanamo Bay under the 1903 lease agreement for the time required for the purposes of coaling and naval stations. But, of course, that base is best known for uh, being an, what do they call that, offshore detention site where you can do things to U.S. and non-U.S. citizens that uh, would be construed as a human rights abuse if it occurred on U.S. soil. So that's why they lease. That's what they use Guantanamo Bay for. To get away with torture. And then they claim to worry about other people's uh, human rights abuses. Mm. The U.S. issues a check to Cuba annually for its lease. But since the revolution, Cuba has only cashed one payment. The Cuban government opposes the treaty, arguing that it violates Article 52 of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, titled Coercion of a State by the Threat or Use of Force. The leasing of land like the Guantanamo Bay Tract was one of the requirements of the Platt Amendment conditions for the withdrawal of the United States troops remaining in Cuba following the Spanish-American War. But remember, most of the Platt Amendment provisions were repealed in 1934 when the Cuban-American Treaty of Relations of 1934 between the U.S. and Cuba was negotiated as part of U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt's good neighbor policy towards Latin America. Jose Manuel Cortina and other members of the Cuban Constitutional Convention of 1940 eliminated the Platt Amendment from the new Cuban Constitution, which means even the Batista regime didn't recognize the land lease on Guantanamo Bay, although Batista, greedy bastard that he was, probably continued to cash those checks as soon as they came. Through the late 1960s and early 1970s, a sustained period of aircraft hijackings between Cuba and the U.S. by citizens of both nations led to a need for cooperation. By 1974, U.S. elected officials had begun to visit the island. Three years later, during the Carter administration, the U.S. and Cuba simultaneously opened interest sections in each other's capitals, which is kind of like a baby step in embassy. In 1977, Cuba and the United States signed a maritime boundary treaty, agreeing on the location of their border in the Straits of Florida. The treaty was never sent to the U.S. for ratification, but the agreement has been implemented by the State Department. In 1980, after 10,000 Cubans crammed into the Peruvian embassy seeking political asylum, Castro stated that anyone who wished to do so could leave Cuba in what became known as the Mariel Boat Lift. Approximately 125,000 people left Cuba for the U U.S., but in a fit of dark-sided humor, a lot of them weren't political prisoners. Rather, Fidel opened up the jails and told the wife beaters, thieves, murderers, and drug dealers to get on the boat and get the fuck out. Another interesting facet of the Mariel boat lift was that before 1980, many Haitian immigrants had come to American shores by boat. They weren't granted the same legal protections as Cuban exiles because they were considered economic migrants rather than political refugees, despite claims made by many Haitians that they were being persecuted by the Duvalier regime. U.S. Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford denied claims of asylum in the United States for Haitian migrants by boat. A backlash by the Congressional Black Caucus ensued, which claimed that the U.S. government was discriminating against Haitian immigrants. Fidel Castro, always the resourceful and very cheeky one, snuck 25,000 Haitian political refugees on the Marielle boats to get them to safety in the U.S. Both Papa Doc and Baby Doc hated Fidel Castro and communism, so Castro was keen to show solidarity with Haitians in Cuba and in Haiti who were anti-Duvalier. In Haiti... 
The second half of the 20th century took the exact opposite turn as it had done in Cuba. After U.S. forces left in 1934, many Haitians left the country to find work, mostly in the neighboring country of the Dominican Republic. The Dominican dictator, Rafael Trujillo, also U.S.-backed, used anti-Haitian sentiment as a nationalist tool to blame Haitians living in DR for the country's economic woes. In an event that became known as the Parsley Massacre, he ordered his army to kill Haitians living on the Dominican side of the border. Few bullets were used and instead 20,000 to 30,000 Haitians were bludgeoned and bayoneted, then herded into the sea where sharks finished what Trujillo had started. Wow. Congressman Hamilton Fish, ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, called the Parsley Massacre the most outrageous atrocity that has ever been perpetuated on the American continent, which would be true if slavery and the Indian Wars and the Trail of Tears hadn't happened, but it was still pretty horrific. President Stenio Vincent became increasingly dictatorial and resigned under U.S. pressure in 1941, being replaced by Elie Lascaux, from 1941 to 1946. In 1941, during the Second World War, Lascaux declared war on Japan on 8 December, Germany on 12 December, Italy on 12 December, Bulgaria on 24 December, Hungary on 24 December, and Romania on 24 December. Out of these six Axis countries, only Romania reciprocated declaring war on Haiti on the same day, 24 December 1941. On 27 December 1945, Haiti became a founding member of the United Nations, uh, which was the successor to the League of Nations, of which Haiti was also a founding member. And many Haitians felt that the country was going to fully rebound from the occupation. In 1946, Lesko was overthrown by the military with Dumarsay Estime later becoming the new president from 1946 to 1950. He sought to improve the economy and the education system, both of which had been damaged by the Yankees during the occupation, and he wanted to boost the role of Black Haitians in government. However, as he sought to consolidate his rule, he too was overthrown in a coup led by Paul McLaur, who replaced him as president from 1950 to 1956. Firmly anti-communist, McLaur was supported by the U.S., uh, whereas Estime was not, and um his early reign enjoyed greater political stability because, you know, since the U.S. liked him, they weren't actively funding death squads and stuff to overthrow him. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of tourists, which I guess is how you gauge the health and stability of a country in the Caribbean. Do white people want to go there? Anyway. The waterfront area of Port-au-Prince was redeveloped to allow cruise ship passengers to walk from the docks to cultural attractions and celebrities such as Truman Capote and Noel Coward visited Haiti. Alas, both good times and trouble don't last always, but trouble got more variants than COVID. In 1956 to 1957, Haiti underwent severe political turmoil. MacLaurin was forced to res resign and leave the country in 1956, and he was followed by four short-lived presidencies. Dr. Francois Duvalier was elected president in 1957 on a populist and black nationalist platform. This was during the decolonization era when countries in the Caribbean, Central and South America, as well as in Africa, were taking down the tricolor and the Union Jack and raising their own damn flag to say nothing of the Middle Eastern and Southeast Asian countries like Algeria and Iran and Vietnam and India, who either had or were currently doing the same. 
Duvalier had the credentials because he was a doctor to appeal to the image-obsessed mulatto ruling elites, even if he didn't have the right complexion to fit in with them. And he used his shared African heritage to appeal to the Creole-speaking Afro-Haitian masses, as well as to the Black diaspora worldwide. Duvalier invoked the memory of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, reminding the world that Haiti was a black country that had overcome the odds and that Haiti would always be a country where a black person could live in dignity. He was saying this during a time when Afro-Caribbean people were being spit on in the streets of London and refused accommodations and where black Americans had to enter most white owned establishments to the back door and were given poor customer service. So the idea of visiting a black tropical paradise where a black person could walk through the front door and wouldn't have to worry about being refused an apartment because of their race galvanized many black people in the diaspora to defend Duvalier and eventually his son, when uh so when critics began complaining about how despotic and murderous they become like a lot of people black people in the caribbean and in the u.s and in canada would push back and be like yeah but look how clean the streets are and look how orderly things are and and that's a country where a black man can actually you know live in dignity or whatever and but at what cost Duvalier was affectionately known, at least early in his reign, he was affectionately known as Papa Doc because he would dress like Baron Samity with the top hat and the dark glasses and the tails on his coat. He was initially popular and he championed Afro-Haitian integration into the public sector, which had traditionally been a mulatto-dominated industry. Duvalier didn't trust the Haitian gendarmerie since most of them were holdovers from the occupation, and instead he created his own private militia from the poorest sections of Port-au-Prince called the Tonton Makouts or Boogeymen. The Tonton Makouts were not like the U.S. Marines executing people in broad daylight and dropping bombs on churches with rebellious priests. Instead, the Makouts kept the population in constant fear because they operated in the shadows. Tonton Makouts didn't usually wear uniforms or any type of insignia, so there was no way to tell who was a Tauntaun Makut and who wasn't. You could be having a conversation with a Tauntaun Makut that you had known all your life and slip up and say something negative about Duvalier and you might die never knowing it was your oldest and closest friend who ratted you out. The Tauntaun Makuts were so frightening, not only because you didn't know who was one, but because you never saw them coming. People would go missing and their bodies would never be found. Priests would just stop showing up to services. Cars would be found on the side of the road with the engine still running. And although everybody knew who took them, you didn't really know and you were too scared to say anything because then you might be next. In 1964, Duvalier proclaimed himself president for life and an uprising against his rule that year in Jeremy was violently suppressed with the ringleaders publicly executed and hundreds of mixed race citizens in that town killed. The bulk of the educated and professional class began leaving the country in droves after the Jeremy massacre, creating a brain drain that characterized the rest of Duvalier's time as president. And corruption became widespread. Duvalier sought to create a personality cult uh, by identifying himself with Baron Samedi, one of the uh, Liwa or spirits of Haitian voodoo. Duvalier's firm anti-communism earned him the support of the American government, who continued to furnish the country with aid money, most of which Duvalier and his family spent on themselves and their inner circle. 
It's really kind of embarrassing because I found like this old Jet magazine uh, from like the early 80s that was like praising Michelle Duvalier, who was Baby Doc's wife, uh, for her impeccable style when she was like rinsing Haiti and they were like turning a blind eye to her, her husband's villainy and stuff. In 1971, Francois Duvalier died and he was succeeded by his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, nicknamed Baby Doc, who ruled until 1986. He largely continued his father's policies, though. He was forced to curb some of the worst excesses in order to court international respectability. Tourism, which had nosedived in Papa Doc's time, again became a growing industry. However, as the Haitian economy declined during the recession years of the mid to late 80s, or yeah, yeah, early to mid 80s, rather, Baby Doc's grip on power began to weaken. In response to an outbreak of African swine fever virus on the island in 1978, U.S. agricultural authorities insisted upon the total eradication of Haiti's pig population in 1982. The program for the eradication of porcine swine fever and for the development of pig raising, which is called PEPADEP, spread already serious economic devastation amongst the peasant population who bred pigs as an investment. And the opposition became even more vocal, bolstered by a visit by Pope John Paul II in 1983, who publicly lambasted Baby Doc. Demonstrations occurred in Gonaives in 1985, which then spread across the country. In January 1986, the Reagan administration began to pressure Duvalier to renounce his rule and leave Haiti, but rejected Duvalier's request to provide asylum for him and his family, but did offer to assist with their departure. On 30 January 1986, Duvalier had initially accepted and President Reagan actually announced his departure based on a report from the Haitian CIA station chief who saw Duvalier's car head for the airport. En route, there was some gunfire and Duvalier's party returned to the palace unnoticed by U.S. intelligence. Duvalier declared, we are as firm as a monkey's tail. He departed on 7 February 1986, though, flying to France in a U.S. Air Force aircraft. In total, roughly 40,000 to 60,000 Haitians are estimated to have been killed during the reign of the Duvaliers. Through the use of his intimidation tactics and executions, many intellectual Haitians had fled, leaving the country with a massive brain drain that it has yet to recover from. Chapter 5, Where We Stand Now The Cold War era ended with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, leaving Cuba without its major international trading partner. The ensuing years were marked by economic difficulty in Cuba, a time known as the Special Period. U.S. law allowed private humanitarian aid to Cuba for part of this time. However, the longstanding U.S. embargo was reinforced in October 1992 by the Cuban Democracy Act, or the Torricelli Law, and in 1996 by the Cuban Liberty and Democracy Solidarity Act, known as the Helms-Burton Act. The 1992 act prohibited foreign-based subsidiaries rather, of U.S. companies from trading with Cuba, travel to Cuba by U.S. citizens, and family remittances to Cuba. Sanctions could also be applied to non-U.S. companies trading with Cuba. As a result, multinational companies had to choose between Cuba and the U.S., with the latter being a much larger market. But like I was saying, once you start to sanction countries that have 
pretty robust domestic economies and aren't really dependent on the United States or trade with the United States, then they could, all the sanctioned people just link up together and trade with each other because shit, I'm already sanctioned. Like what else you finna do? Relations deteriorated again following the election of George W. Bush, just like everything deteriorated after the election of George W. Bush. During his campaign, Bush courted the Cuban-American vote, which typically already votes Republican, with the exception of 2008, by emphasizing his opposition to the government of Fidel Castro and supporting tighter embargo restrictions. How can they get any tighter? Like, what what else are you going to prevent the world from providing to Cuba. Jesus Christ. Can you come up with something else? Approximately three months after his inauguration, the Bush administration began expanding travel restrictions and the United States Department of the Treasury issued new financial restrictions to deter American citizens from illegally traveling to the island. Also in 2001, five Cuban agents were convicted on 26 counts of espionage, conspiracy to commit murder, and other illegal activities in the U.S. On 15 June 2009, the U.S. Supreme Court denied review of their case. They claimed that they were refugees. Tensions heightened as the Undersecretary uh, of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs, John Bolton, the guy with the crazy one with the mustache, accused Cuba of maintaining a biological weapons program. Many in the United States, including ex-president Jimmy Carter, expressed doubts about this claim. Bolton wanted to, like, drop a nuclear weapon on Cuba because he claimed that they had biological weapons, which they did not have. Later, Bolton was criticized for pressuring subordinates who questioned the quality of the intelligence that Bolton had used as the basis for his assertion. Bolton identified the Castro government as part of America's axis of evil, highlighting the fact that the Cuban leader visited several U.S. foes, including Libya, Iran, and Syria. Yeah, because you already had them sanctioned. So, like, why not just get oil from these countries that you also don't like? Duh. Anyway. In November 2006, U.S. congressional auditors accused the development agency USAID of failing to properly administer its program for promoting democracy in Cuba. They said USAID had channeled tens of millions of dollars through exile groups in Miami, which were sometimes wasteful or kept questionable accounts. The report said that the organizations had sent items such as chocolate and cashmere jerseys to Cuba. Their report concluded that, sorry, I'm so sorry, 30% of the exile groups who received USA grants showed questionable expenditures. In April 2006, the Bush administration appointed Caleb McCary as the transition coordinator for Cuba, provided him a budget of $59 million with the task of promoting the governmental shift to democracy after Castro's death. Castro did not die for like another 10 years after this, mind you. Official Cuban News Service Grandma alleges that these transition plans were created at the behest of Cuban exile groups in Miami and that McCary was responsible for engineering the overthrow of the Aristide government in Haiti. In 2006, the Commission for Assistance to a Free Cuba released a 93-page report, and the report included a plan that suggested the U.S. spent $80 million 
$80 million to ensure that Cuba's communist system did not outlive the death of Fidel Castro. Spoiler alert, it did. The plan also featured a classified annex that Cuban officials mistakenly claimed could be a plot to assassinate Castro or a U.S. military invasion of Cuba, but it didn't have that. After Fidel Castro's announcement of resignation in 2008, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, John Negroponte, said that the U.S. would maintain its embargo. So the U.S. lied. In 2014, President Barack Obama and Cuban leader Raul Castro announced the beginning of a process of normalizing relations between Cuba and the U.S., which media sources have named the Cuban Thaw. Negotiated in secret in Canada and the Vatican City with the assistance of Pope Francis, the agreement led to the lifting of some U.S. travel restrictions, fewer restrictions on remittances, access to the Cuban financial system for U.S. banks, and the establishment of a U.S. embassy in Havana, which had been closed since 1960. The country's respective intersections in another's capitals were upgraded to embassies in 2015. In 2016, President Barack Obama visited Cuba, becoming the first sitting U.S. president in 88 years to visit the island. Despite multiple assassination attempts and external coup d'etat attempts by the CIA, Fidel Castro lived to the ripe old age of 90, dying in 2016. He remains a pretty controversial figure, an inspiration for millions, and a symbol of tyranny for others. His brother Raul Castro took power as president after Fidel's death, but he has since stepped down as of 19 April 2018 after current president Miguel Diaz-Canel was elected president on 11 March 2018 during parliamentary elections. So not only did Castro step down in 2008 from like most of his positions, when his brother took power, he also stepped down before Don, uh, well, he's still, is he still alive? I don't know if Raul Castro is still alive. I do know that unlike most tyrants, he retired and let an elected leader take over like what you're supposed to do. But uh, current president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, was elected president on 11 March 2018 after those elections, parliamentary elections. On 16 June 2017, President Donald Trump announced that he was suspending the policy for unconditional sanctions relief for Cuba while also leaving the door open for a better deal between the U.S. and Cuba. On 8 November, hey, that's my birthday, 2017, it was announced that the business and travel restrictions that were loosened by the Obama administration would be reinstated and they went into effect on 9 November. I swear every bad thing in history happens between 7 November and 9 November. I mean, if you just look up those dates in like early modern European history, everything bad happens between those days. I'm cursed. Anyway, on 4 June 2019, the Trump administration announced new restrictions on American travel to Cuba. Trump characterized Obama's policy as having granted Cuba economic sanctions relief for nothing in exchange. Well, what the hell would Cuba even have to give you after this embargo? God, he was so stupid. The Trump administration's policy aimed to impose new restrictions with regards to travel and funding. However, Traveling via airlines and cruise lines has not been prohibited completely. Moreover, diplomatic relations remained intact and embassies in D.C. and Havana have stayed open. 
So that was really just a ploy to like keep the Cuban American vote. On 12 January 2021, the U.S. State Department added Cuba to its list of state sponsors of terrorism. Outgoing U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo stated that Cuba harbored several American fugitives, including Asada Shakur, as well as members of the Colombian National Liberation Army and supported the regime of Nicolas Maduro. Why wouldn't they? Venezuela under Maduro gives them oil. In June 2021, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration continued America's tradition of voting against an annual United Nations General Assembly resolution calling for an end to U.S. economic embargo on Cuba. The resolution was adopted for the 29th time with 184 votes in favor, three abstentions, and two no votes, the U.S. and Israel. Until, in July 2021, so this month, protests broke out in Cuba over the lack of vaccinations that were being done. Due to the embargo, the Cuban government, which has developed its own vaccine for COVID-19, has a shortage of syringes to administer this vaccine. Under the Trade Sanctions Reform and Enhancement Act of 2000, exports from the U.S. to Cuba in industries of food and medical products are only permitted with the proper licensing and permissions from the U.S. Department of Commerce and the United States Department of the Treasury, which they have not granted uh, and refused to grant in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic and all its variants. When they were having that big to-do because the U.S. and Israel and, like, Western Europe refused to, you know, um, what do you call that? Wave the patent restrictions so that other countries could start making their own vaccines since they couldn't afford Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca and all those other fucking people in Europe and the United States that couldn't afford those vaccines. So they needed the patent restrictions lifted so that they could afford to make their own vaccines. And because of like the sanctions on Russia and China and Cuba, they uh, run the risk of running afoul of the U.S. government and not being able to do business with the U.S. government if they take those vaccines. But there was an international outcry. And while they have not uh, issued the waiver for the vaccine patents, the Biden administration made a concession where you can get the Sinovax and the Sinopharm, the Russian and, and Chinese uh, vaccines, but a block of countries, including the US, Canada, and the UK, the real axis of evil, if you want to keep it a grip, add France to that, they are going to impose their will in other ways by not accepting people into the country who got vaccines from like China or from Russia, even though they're just as effective as the ones that the US and the UK and Canada do accept. But you know, petty, 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 always. Also remember that under the Helms-Burton Act, foreign companies essentially have to choose to do business with Cuba or the US and two EU firms have already had to cancel their orders with the Cuban government for an exchange of Cuban vaccines and EU made syringes because 
then they would have to stop doing business in the U.S. if they had gone ahead with the deal. Several people were jailed in Cuba after it was discovered that a protest song that was being played on Cuban pirate radio, Patria y Vida, had been sponsored by the U.S. government and special interest groups who want regime change in Cuba. The U.S. media devoted nonstop coverage to the anti-government protesters while ignoring the pro-government marches and the hashtag SOS Cuba trended on Twitter for and Instagram for about like a week or two after it was discovered that several media outlets had distorted images, lied about the location of the protest, and that the U.S. government was spending millions promoting SOS Cuba. Most of the enthusiasm died out on social media, and so did the pro regime change protests. It doesn't help that most of the SOS Cuba supporters had racist tweets and supported Donald Trump and a bunch of other crap. So they were not really able to gain sympathy outside of the typical neoliberal and conservative outlets. The Biden administration sanctioned a key Cuban official and a government special forces unit known as the Buenas Negras for human rights abuses in the wake of the protests on the island. On 22 July 2021, which was like, what, last week, President Biden stated, I unequivocally condemn the mass detentions, this is the crime bill guy, and sham trials that are unjustly sentencing to prison those who dare to speak out in an effort to intimidate and threaten the Cuban people into silence. What about the mass detentions and sham trials that are unjustly sentencing to prison those who dare to speak out in an effort uh, to intimidate and threaten the American people into silence. Which, like I said, is really rich considering that the U.S. operates a detention center on Cuban soil where they have been torturing people without due process. Despite the misinformation pushed by the government and their media lapdogs, American public opinion of Cuba has overall become more favorable since the late 90s. And as more Americans learn more about the embargo, they become more supportive of ending it, as well as reestablishing full diplomatic ties with Cuba. Gallup's poll that asks, is your overall opinion of Cuba very favorable, mostly favorable, mostly unfavorable, or very unfavorable, began in 1997 with only 10% of people voting favorable or mostly favorable. And in 2015, Cuba's favorability reached 46%, with almost half of the population believing Cuba to be very or mostly favorable, the highest percentage since the question has been asked. That question has had a constant rise in favorability, while the question asking whether or not Cuba was a serious threat has had a constant decrease. According to the Roper Center, 68% of people in 1983 viewed Cuba as a serious or moderately serious threat to the United States, while by 2014, only 25% of the American population that was polled saw Cuba as a threat at all. In a separate question by Gallup, do you oppose or favor reestablishing diplomatic relationships with Cuba? 71% of those polled in 1999 had opposed, and most recently in 2015, the percentage had dropped to only 51%. So as time goes by and the bullshit gets revealed and also, you know, America, you can't, you can't keep everybody down. And now you got social media, which is able to like shed light on things in real time. People's eyes are starting to be opened and they kind of just want to visit Cuba and, you know, drink cortaditos and, and 
get the cigars and I don't know, whatever it is that they want to do in Cuba. Because it's, it's just not that serious, bro. In Haiti, the Duvalier's departure left a power vacuum that was soon filled by Army leader General Henri Namfi, who headed a new national governing council. Elections scheduled for November 1987 were aborted after dozens of inhabitants were shot in the capital by soldiers and Tantan Makouts. Fraudulent elections followed in 1988, in which only 4% of the citizens voted. The newly elected President Leslie uh, Monagat was then overthrown some months later in the June 1988 Haitian coup d'etat. Another coup followed in September 1988 after the St. Jean Bosco massacre in which between 13 to 15 people, I mean 13 to 50 people attending a mass led by prominent government critic and Catholic priest Jean-Bertrand Aristide were killed. General Prosper Avro subsequently led a military regime until March 1990. In December 1990, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected president of Haiti. Aristide, who was born into poverty in Port Salut and spent his childhood in the slums of Port-au-Prince, was a priest of the Salesian order who was a proponent of liberation theology. Please see episode 5.10 of my History of Christianity series uh, for more on liberation theology. The misery endured by Haiti's poor during the Duvalierist regime made a deep impression on Aristide, and he became an outspoken critic of Duvalierism and of the Catholic Church's apparent closeness with the Duvaliers since a 1966 Vatican Concordat granted Duvalier one-time power to appoint Haiti's bishops. Aristide denounced Duvalier's regime in one of his earliest sermons, which of course did not go unnoticed. Under pressure, the provincial delegate of the Salesian Order sent Aristide into three years of exile in Montreal, but by 1985, as popular opposition to Duvalier's regime grew, Aristide was back preaching in Haiti. His Easter week sermon, A Call to Holiness, was delivered at the Cathedral of Port-au-Prince and later broadcast throughout Haiti, proclaiming the path of those Haitians who reject the regime is the path of righteousness and love. Aristide became a leading figure in the Tilaglis movement, whose name means Little Church in Creole. In September 1985, he was appointed to St. John Bosco Church in a poor neighborhood in Port-au-Prince. Struck by the absence of young people in the church, Aristide began to organize the youth, sponsoring weekly youth masses. He founded an orphanage for urban street children in 1986 called La Famille Salavi, which means family is life. The program sought to be a model of participatory democracy for the children it served. As Aristide became a leading voice for the aspirations of Haiti's dispossessed, he inevitably became a target for attack, surviving at least four assassination attempts. The most widely publicized attempt, the St. John Bosco Massacre, occurred on 11 September 1988, when over 100 armed Tonton Makouts forced their way into St. John Bosco as Aristide began Sunday Mass. As army troops and police stood by, the men fired machine guns at the congregation and attacked fleeing parishioners with machetes. Ouch! Aristide's church was burned to the ground, and like I said, between 13 and 50 people uh, were killed and 77 wounded. Aristide survived and went into hiding. Damn, how bad were they shooting? 
Subsequently, Silesian officials ordered Aristi to leave Haiti, but tens of thousands of Haitians protested, blocking his access to the airport. In December 1988, Aristi was expelled from his Silesian order. A statement prepared by the Silesians called the priest's political activities an incitement to violence and hatred out of line with his role as a clergyman. Aristide appealed the decision saying, the crime of which I stand accused is the crime of preaching food for all men and women. In a January 1988 interview, he said, the solution is revolution, first in the spirit of the gospel. Jesus could not accept people going hungry. It is a conflict between classes, rich and poor. My role is to preach and organize. In 1994, Aristide left the priesthood, ending years of tension with the church over his criticism of its hierarchy and his espousal of liberation theology. In December 1990, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected president in the Haitian general election. However, his ambitious reformist agenda worried the elites and the U.S. government, and in September of the following year, he was overthrown by the military led by Raoul Cedras in the 1991 Haitian coup d'etat. Amidst the continuing turmoil, many Haitians attempted to flee the country. In September 1994, the United States negotiated the departure of Haiti's military leaders and the peaceful entry of 20,000 U.S. troops under Operation Uphold Democracy. This enabled the restoration of the democratically elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide as president, who returned to Haiti on uh, in October of 1994 to complete his term. As part of the deal, Aristide, whose initial reforms were very much socialist in nature, had to implement free market reforms in an attempt to improve the Haitian economy. This, of course, did not happen, although the wealthy did get wealthier. So most who talk about Aristide's reforms, which were largely not his idea, end up with the eventual mixed results line. So pro tip on that one, when reading about neoliberal economic policies implemented in the global South, if the article or the book says that there were mixed results, that means foreigners from the global North and the elites who live in that poor country got richer while everyone else got poorer and maybe even died from some disease that no one has died from since the Civil War. Elections in Haiti were held in 1995 that were won by Rene Preval, gaining 88% of the popular vote, albeit on a low turnout. So when there's a, a high margin but a low turnout, that usually means it was rigged. Aristide subsequently formed his own party, Fanmi Lavalas, and a political deadlock ensued. In November 2000, election returned Aristide to the presidency with 92% of the vote and an equally low turnout. The election had been boycotted by the opposition who had organized into the Convergence Democratique over a dispute in the May legislative elections. In subsequent years, there was increasing violence between rival political factions. Similar to their policy regarding Cuba, the U.S. imposed a development assistance embargo on Haiti after Aristide's win in 2000, holding up over $200 million in aid. The U.S. government also financed Haitian organizations that were working to undermine and un overthrow the Haitian government, both in Haiti and in Miami, which is the reactionary capital of the world. Aristide spent 
years negotiating with the Convergence Democratique on new elections, but the Convergence's inability to develop a sufficient electoral base made elections unattractive for them. So instead, they do what elites always do when they can't win fairly. They staged a coup. In 2004, an anti-Aristide revolt began in the northern part of Haiti. On 29 February 2004, Aristide was forcibly removed and sent to exile in Africa on a U.S. government plane. The U.S. replaced the constitutional government with an unelected prime minister who was flown in from Florida. The precise nature of the events are disputed. Some, including Aristide and his bodyguard, Franz Gabriel, stated that he was the victim of a new coup d'etat or modern kidnapping by U.S. forces. Now, without incriminating, well, I wouldn't be incriminating myself. I was 18 at the time. But without going into too much detail, I can say that Aristide was in fact kidnapped by the U.S. Special Forces because I know people in U.S. Special Forces who were in U.S. Special Forces during that time went to Haiti and they have no problem telling anyone that asked, yeah, I kidnapped John Bertrand, Bertrand Aristide. Like, People in the military, you know, the rank and file guys, they don't deny it. They'll just be like, yeah, I went to Haiti and we we took them out. And if you ask them why, most will say that they were just following orders. But uh, one guy actually said to me, like, with a straight face, zero emotion, we brought him back to power. So we felt like we could take him out whenever we wanted. And that was probably like the actual rationale. And that line has haunted me ever since I heard it. Uh, Mrs. Aristide stated that the kidnappers wore special forces uniforms and changed into civilian clothes upon boarding the aircraft that was used to remove Aristide from Haiti. And again, that aircraft was a U.S. government aircraft. That part is not up for dispute. So yeah, yeah, the U.S. government kidnapped Jean Bertrand Aristide and removed him from power in 2004. That's that's pretty obvious. But, you know, nobody ever listens to black people. We be knowing, but nobody ever listens to us. And then like 20 years from now, all the documents and files related to it are going to become unclassified and, you know, you somebody's going to file a Freedom of Information Act request for it. And then they're going to win like a Pulitzer or something for printing some expose that, yes, the U.S. Uh, invaded Haiti and kidnapped Aristide and removed him from power and just dropped him off in Africa separated him from his family, from his children, all that. And they're going to win a Pulitzer for saying something that Black people have been saying since the day that it happened. But uh, like I said, currently the U.S. government is denying it. But uh, if you ask anybody in Special Forces that's been in Special Forces for a minute, they'll just say, yeah, we did that. They'll admit to all kinds of stuff. They don't care. So as political violence and crime continue to grow in Haiti, a United Nations stabilization mission called MINUSTA was brought in to maintain order. However, MINUSTA proved controversial as their at times heavy-handed approach to maintaining law and order and several instances of abuses, including sexual abuse of uh, young women that led to a UN baby boom of 
hundreds of mixed race babies who had Haitian mothers and UN peacekeeper fathers. The UN also did this in Cameroon. And uh, the also mixed race first lady of Cameroon literally told the head of the UN, you need to come and get your children, which I thought was mean and hilarious. Boniface Alexandra assumed interim authority until 2006 when Rene Preval was re-elected president following elections that year. In 2009, the U.S. undermined Haiti's democracy by providing political and financial support to unlawful parliamentary elections in Haiti that were held in April and June of 2009. The 2009 elections illegally excluded several political parties, including Haiti's largest political party, Fanmi Lavelas. The impact was equivalent to holding a U.S. election without either the GOP or the Democratic Party participating. That's how big Fami Lavalas, Lavalas, I'm not sure. Not That's how big this party is. On 12 January 2010 at 4.53 p.m. local time, Haiti was struck by a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. This was the country's most severe earthquake in over 200 years. The earthquake was reported to have left between 220,000 and 300,000 people dead and up to 1.6 million people homeless. The situation was exacerbated by a subsequent massive cholera outbreak that was triggered when cholera-infected waste from a UN peacekeeping station contaminated the country's main river, the Artibonite. In 2017, it was reported that roughly 10,000 Haitians had died and nearly a million had been made ill as a result of this. After years of denial, the UN apologized in 2016, but as of 2017, they have refused to acknowledge fault, thus avoiding financial responsibility. Elections were held on 28 November 2010 for the Senate, the Parliament, and the first round of the presidential elections. These elections, which had the typical low voter turnout that genuinely marks a rigged election, were also contaminated by a corrupt electoral council, illegal exclusion of political parties, ballot stuffing, and an arbitrary revision of the results. A month before these 2010 elections, 45 members of the U.S. Congress warned Secretary of State Hillary Clinton that supporting flawed elections will come back to haunt the international community by generating unrest and threatening the implementation of earthquake reconstruction projects. Well, that's a nice way of saying like officially that's what they said in the first page. But then if you keep reading the uh, the written statement that these 45 members of Congress, most of whom were in the Congressional Black Caucus, What they basically said is, we know that you are rigging the Haitian election. Please stop. You're you're just making a terrible situation worse. We need to ensure chain of custody on all of these earthquake reconstruction projects and you swapping out good people for your cronies in Haiti is just going to make a mess of things and things are already a mess. But she did it anyway, because it's Hillary fucking Clinton. Now, once again, it's time for me to rant. And the object of my ire this time is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, there is a real case to be made against Hillary Clinton in Haiti. 
From her first days as Secretary of State in the Obama administration, Clinton saw Haiti as a place to road test a central piece of her foreign policy vision of elevating development alongside diplomacy and defense as core pillars of American power. So basically soft power utilization instead of bombs. But she still ended up using the bombs anyway or wanting to, well, whatever. So in her mind, Haiti was going to be this major example of what she called economic statecraft, which is a scary Friedman-esque Kissinger-approved concept where business and government partner to address national disasters and poverty and disease and neutralizing threats while generating money and power for the United States. And her husband co-signed this as a win-win-win. Mind you, I said Friedman-esque Kissinger-approved because these are two men who also deployed economic statecraft and it didn't fucking work. When Friedman used Latin America as the road test for his idea, for his neoliberal ideas of economic statecraft, you had uh, Augusto Pinochet in, Ch- in Chile. When Kissinger did it in Southeast Asia, you had Suharto in Indonesia. So basically, economic statecraft is I'm going to turn a blind eye to human rights abuses and miscarriages of justice in this third world country so that some U.S. multinational can make buku money off these people. And one of the uh, U.S.-based multinationals that did so in Haiti was Tom's. I bet you thought you were doing the right thing buying their shoes. You weren't. This is also kind of a riff on Tony Blair's third way capitalism with American bloodthirstiness thrown in for good measure. But also Tony Blair's third way capitalism was more British centric. He wanted British firms to take care of all of the things that the state is supposed to take care of. And then the British people were supposed to exercise, uh, what do they call it? Personal responsibility. So basically it's austerity measures where the government just slashes all social funding. And then they give tons of tax cuts to already terribly rich people with the expectation that these terribly rich people, people like Jeff Bezos, uh, these people will then you know, maintain the roads and give you health care and all of the stuff that the government is supposed to do. And the government basically restricts itself to taxing us and giving our money to those rich people. And then those rich people still make us pay for every fucking thing. And honestly, it's just one of those things that if you think about it for too long, you just get super angry. So I'm going to move on. But, you know, like I said, there's the American bloodthirstiness thrown in for good measure, because if it doesn't involve giving the guys with the guns money to spread peace with said guns, then it is an American foreign policy. So Clinton has gotten a lot of grief for this way of thinking, which was further exemplified by a 2011 speech in which she pitched reconstruction in Iraq eight years after the invasion as a business opportunity. 
10 million people dead. And that's what she said. And let's not forget the emails where she and Neera Tandon uh, basically tried to sell the bombing and invasion of Libya, a country of 7 million people who have never done anything to the United States, as a boon to the U.S. oil economy. Neera actually said, like, the war will pay for itself, which is just not how you should talk about war. People die and then there's pestilence and just, there's just really no way to justify the existence of this country. Like no way at all. Like I say, if you think about it for too much, it just, you just feel really, really hollow and bleak. But in all fairness to Hillary Clinton, which I really don't want to be fair to her. I hate her so much. Her incredibly skewed and unreasonably naive and laughably half-baked ideas of economic statecraft aren't really unique to her pudding brain. Rather, they are what passes for humanitarianism in the U.S. government and has for pretty much its entire existence. The U.S. government devotes less than 1% of its budget to foreign aid, and most of that goes to vendors based in the United States. For instance, nearly half a billion dollars of U.S. government relief aid for Haiti following the 2010 earthquake went to the Defense Department. The vast majority of U.S. government contracts went to American firms, and almost no cash ever went or was intended to go to Haitians or to the Haitian government. The same is true for nearly all non-governmental organizations and charities, including the American Red Cross, which is why you should not give them your money. Now, despite promises, oh, don't give your money to Amnesty either. Now, again, despite promises to change this this model of, of aid, both of the Clintons have adhered to uh, business as usual. Hillary is head of the State Department, which effectively includes the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, and Bill in his panoply of roles, including co-chairing the Interim Haiti Recovery Mission, a nominally Haitian government agency charged with overseeing the allocation of reconstruction money donated by foreign governments to a World Bank Managed Fund for roughly 18 months after the earthquake. USAID, ignoring recommendations to hire Haitian contractors, brought in several U.S. firms and one Mexican firm. They wouldn't even hire Haitian-American firms. And I know this because a girl that I went to high school with, her father, well, the whole family is Haitian, and her father lives in, what, Palm Beach County, I think? Haitian-American man, dual citizen of both countries, has a construction company, tried to get, because, you know, he speaks French, English, and Creole, tried to get, uh, a USA, uh, one of those IHRC and USA contracts to go home and rebuild his country was all hyped to do it. Got the idea from a, a guy that he works with, white guy. The white guy got two contracts, wasn't able to complete either of them, got buku money though. He got nothing. An actual Haitian man with a company with knowledge of the area, knew the language, would have been able to hire locals, pay in local currency, all that good stuff could get. Couldn't get a contract, couldn't get it. Then when you add the cost of flights, hotels, cars, food allowance, living expenses, and danger pay, that ballooned the cost 
per house uh, to build this housing development from $8,000 per house to $33,000 per house, as investigative reporter Jake Johnston found. And again, this is not unique to the Clintons or any of these scammy ass organizations that they are on the board of. This is just how Americans do business. It's what they did in Afghanistan for 20 some years. It's what they're doing in Iraq. It's what they do everywhere. Ultimately, two of the American contractors were suspended from receiving any future government contracts because of just the sheer scale of fraud. And this is 18 months. The Defense Department got, what, half a billion dollars and was gone, just gone from Haiti within two years. They did nothing. As one Haitian official told Jake Johnston, out of ignorance, there was much arrogance. While campaigning in 2016, Trump told a group of Haitian Americans in Miami that the Clintons had laundered money during the earthquake, which is not necessarily true, but it is not necessarily false either. Everything that the U.S. does in the name of humanitarian aid is money laundering. And by money laundering, I mean it's a way of taking taxpayer dollars, claiming to do some good with it, and instead lining the pockets of already cash rich American businesses that usually belong to their friends through things like overhead and expenses. Also in Clinton's emails were discussions between her and her aides about who they felt should win the Haitian presidential election, which is a very, very, very interesting conversation for a bunch of Americans who have zero business in Haitian elections to be having. And I'm actually being nice Uh, when I say that it was just a discussion with her and some of the people that she worked with about who they felt should win the Haitian presidential election because the actual emails are pretty blatant. Clinton saying, do what you need to do so Martelli wins. Uh, So yeah, Michelle Martelli is a Haitian musician better known as Sweet Mickey and Clinton wanted to ensure that he won over... uh, Manigat, who was a Haitian constitutional law professor, who was a pretty vocal critic of the Clintons' involvement in Haiti. Now, I wonder why the U.S. Secretary of State would want a singer to run the country that she planned to use as a crash test dummy for more neoliberal economic experimentation over a constitutional law professor. Hmm. Anyway, Clinton got her way. And if those emails are any indication, she got it unfairly, which is just more of the same when it comes to U.S.-Haitian relations. And that is all that I'm going to say about Hillary Clinton. For whatever reason, um, Black people like her. I, I, don't, I don't know why. She's awful and she, she doesn't even care. But y'all like her. I, I don't get it. But... I pray for your deliverance. Now, the runoff between Michelle Martelli and Mirlan Menegat took place on 20 March 2011, and preliminary results, which were released on 4 April of that year, named Martelli the winner. In 2011, both former dictator Jean-Claude Duvalier and Jean-Bertrand Aristide returned to Haiti. Attempts to try Duvalier for crimes committed under his rule were shelved following his death in 2014. In 2013, 
Haiti called for European nations to pay reparations for slavery and establish an official commission for the settlement of past wrongdoings. Meanwhile, after continuing political wrangling with the opposition and allegations of electoral fraud, Martelly agreed to step down in 2016 without a successor in place. An interim president, Jacques Lemaire Prévert, then took office, and after numerous postponements, partly owing to the devastating effects of Hurricane Matthew, elections were eventually held in November of 2016. The victor, Jovenel Moyes of the Haitian Tet Calais party was subsequently sworn in as president in 2017. Beginning in 2018 and continuing into 2019, Haitians began taking to the streets to demand the resignation of President Moyes amid allegations that he and uh, Michel Martelly before him embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars of government funds that were earmarked for badly needed social programs in the Petro-Caribe scandal. Under Petro-Caribe, which is a strategic oil alliance signed with uh, signed between Haiti and Venezuela in 2006, Haiti would save precious dollars by borrowing fuel from its oil-rich neighbor and deferring payment on that for up to 25 years. The Haitian government was then supposed to use that extra money to develop the country and fund social programs. Instead, at least $2 billion, equivalent to almost a quarter of Haiti's total economy for 2017, went missing, and Haitians saw very few of the promised benefits, according to protesters and local media. Haitian taxpayers are still on the hook and owe Venezuela billions of dollars for the borrowed oil and the uh, consequences for not paying that back are pretty, pretty steep. Pretty bad. They get kicked out of CARICOM and basically no oil producing nation in CARICOM will give them oil. Uh, I think the BRIC nations and OPEC and African Union oil producers have also uh, signed on to bar Haiti from buying oil from them if they don't pay Venezuela back under this Petro-Caribe deal. So understandably, Haitians are pretty upset still about this. Now, a damning report on government corruption that was delivered to the Haitian Senate by official auditors on 31 May 2019 triggered fresh demonstrations with thousands of Haitians marching through the capital of Port-au-Prince and other cities throughout June of 2019. On 20 June 2019, a delegation from the Organization of American States traveled to Haiti in hopes of, quote, lowering the political temperature, but to no avail. I mean, would an OIS, OAS delegation be able to get you out of the streets if you found out that $2 billion had just disappeared and you didn't even get new roads to show for it? and you're still on the hook for the loans. Venezuela, for its part, has, uh, did rather promise to forgive about a quarter of the two billion. Um, and then they decided that they couldn't afford to do that. And now with the assassination of Moyes, they're thinking about maybe forgiving or extending the repayment terms. They're being really nice about it, essentially, but they do kind of need that money themselves. But, you know, hopefully they can work that out because if not, Haiti is so screwed. 
Uh, but President Moyes also faced challenges to his mandate from opposition leaders who believe that Moyes' five-year term should end from the date of the inconclusive 2015 elections, that is, on 7 February 2021, five years to the day since his predecessor in office, Michelle Martelli, stepped down. Or are they counting Prevere? I should have figured that out. I don't know. Moyes, however, counted from the date of his swearing in and claimed that his term would not end until 2022. But, um, mm, apparently somebody did not feel like waiting until February of 2022 because on 7 July 2021, Jovenel Moyes, who was by then ruling by decree, was assassinated in an attack on his private residence and First Lady Martine Moyes was hospitalized the following the overnight attack. The United Nations Special Envoy for Haiti, Helen Lalim, said on 8 July 2021 that Interim Prime Minister Claude Joseph, as acting president, would lead Haiti until an election was held or is held, hopefully, later in the year, urging all parties to set aside all their differences. Claude Joseph's presidency is disputed with Senate leader Joseph Lambert, but the UN recognizes Claude Joseph as the legitimate acting president even though Moyes had made Joseph's rival, Ariel Henry, the prime minister a few weeks before the assassination. But on 19 July 2021, Claude Joseph stepped down as acting president and transferred power to Ariel Henry. So crisis averted there. So here we are. And there it is. Roughly 250 years or so of the U.S. sticking its dirty little fingers in Haiti and Cuba's respective pies with no plans to wash either their hands or to stop sticking them in things that they don't belong in anytime soon. The Cuban and Haitian people have been very resilient in the face of so much fear-mongering and interference and bloodshed by the U.S. and their European cronies. And it is this podcaster's most sincere hope that this bloated and corrupt empire will crumble under the weight of its own contradictions sooner rather than later. Join me next time for more musings on history.